Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Have you ever heard of the movie City of God? Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it, but you know that—that's supposed to be, you know, send, you know, sending a message to somebody about, hey, uh, you know, color does make a difference. Brazil's favelas or shanty towns were celebrated during the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games as the birthplace of a lot of Brazil's culture. Well, that was showbiz. NPR's Lulu Garcia Navarro visited three of the most well-known favela communities to find out how the Olympics are affecting people who live there. Santa Marta is Rio's most famous favela internationally because Michael. That's the man himself in the 1996 video for They Don't Care About Us, which was filmed in the community. These days, there's a bronze statue of Jackson, arms outstretched, echoing the pose of Rio's Christ the Redeemer. Michael Jackson deixou um legado para a favela Santa Marta. Salechi Martins is a tour guide here, and she tells me Michael Jackson left a huge legacy for Santa Marta. I would even say he's my patron, she says. I bring tourists up here many times a day. But despite huge hopes, the impact of these Olympic Games here... Not so great, she says. Tourism has been very weak. Many consulates told their citizens not to visit the favelas, she says. I think people were too afraid and we're seeing very few tourists coming here. It's very disappointing, she says. Tourism is a boost for the whole community, she explains. All the guides are from Santa Marta and funds from their cooperative are given to the Residents Association. Francisco Aragão owns a kiosk that sells drinks and snacks to Santa Marta visitors. As we walk by, he's watching the Olympics on TV in his store. I ask him if he's enjoying the show. No, he answers. Quem está curtindo? Turista. 
Who is enjoying the games, he says. Not the poor. Brazil doesn't have the money for these games. Our hospitals are a mess. The government has put up a facade to hide the truth, he says. He can't afford to buy Olympic tickets to see anything in person. So this is the closest he's getting to the games, he says. Security, too, is still very bad in many favelas, despite the presence of 85,000 security forces in the city. This matters because Brazil is one of the most unequal countries in the world. And in Rio, at least 25% of the population live in impoverished communities. Yesterday, Lucia Cabral woke up to shooting in her complex of favelas called Alemão. It's in Rio's north zone, far away from the main Olympic venues. She lets me listen to her recording of the gun battle. One woman was shot and wounded in the fight between drug traffickers and police. While Olympic organizers promised the safest games ever, she says, in the past two weeks in Alemão, five people have been shot. I think during the Olympics they just wanted to keep us trapped inside the favelas, she says. We are abandoned. She says she saw the opening ceremony, also on TV, with its celebration of favela life. But it doesn't help, she says, a lovely show for a single day, but the rest of the time they are killing two or three kids a day, she says. But there is one community which has been celebrating the games. We end our day in the favela of Cidade de Dios, a sprawling, gritty area which was the subject of the hit 2002 Brazilian film City of God. And this joyful noise is Rafaela Silva's family. She won Brazil's first gold for judo. Her story is already the stuff of legend here. The rise from poverty, the racism she suffered because she's black. She's now a national hero. Her father, Luis Carlos Silva, tells me that when Rafaela was growing up, he used to have to pretend he lived in another neighborhood because employers wouldn't give jobs to people from the favelas. This is a wonderful moment, he says. Our whole family is thrilled. But also, it's for the community. Never forget your roots is what I always told her. She was born in the city of God. She'll always be from the city of God, he says. Among those also celebrating is Sergio Leal. He runs a martial arts NGO in Cidade de Dios. He says he's thrilled about Rafaela Silva's win. But when I ask him if he thinks the Olympics brought good things to this neighborhood only five miles away from the Olympic Park, he pauses. The Olympics themselves, she says, didn't do anything for City of God. Rafaela Silva, through her hard work and merit, did something. The light is Rafaela, and not these games, he says, because she sends a message to the people here that maybe if she could do it, I can too. Lulu Garcia Navarro, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. I love my gold medal, but it's not, in history, it's not as important as their cult medals. Like for me, there's just some, something so special about what they did and who they did it in front of. These are athletes who, who did something really important at a seminal point in human history. Not African-American history, not American history, in human history. They did something incredibly important. Simply being on the medal stand in 1936 sent a message. From that struggle for legitimacy became the foundation of the struggle for access, 
which became integrated into nonviolent direct action and prime the pump for Dr. King. My guest is Deborah Riley Draper, writer, director, producer of Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, and Versailles 73, American Runway Revolution. We're going to get back to all that because there's a lot more to say about it, but I just want to get the, that out of the way. Um, but the, And then we're here with her husband, Michael A. Draper, who is the executive producer of Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, and Versailles 73. And we're here with Lacey Barnes, who is the line producer Olympic, of Olympic Pride, American Pre- Prejudice. She's been giving us lessons <laughs> about basically how to get your message out. But that's, that's, another, that's another thing. But uh, I'm really very, very excited uh, to talk to, uh, to Deborah and, and her husband, everybody. I just saw the, I saw the film, uh, the documentary, for the first time. Number one, congratulations. It's, it's Thank you wonderful. so much. We're uh, very proud of that piece of work. It's great. Now, that really is, is off the chart. Uh, I saw it, uh, you showed it at the uh, NAPJ, National Associated Black Journalists Convention, in, uh, in Washington Thursday. It was Thursday. And really, I found myself, and I, again, I've seen a lot of documentaries, been involved with some and all that. Um, this one was particularly moving, because uh, what you did is, everybody knows the story. We talk, it, The film concentrates on the 1936 Olympics, but what you did, which I thought was just an exceptional idea. Um, you, everybody knows the story of Jesse Owens, but what we did not really know were the stories of his teammates, of his seven, 17, 17, 17 black teammates. other black teammates on that team in 1936. Yeah, what led you to, uh, I mean, again, it's an interesting approach to that. Um, what led you to take that particular, uh, was it, was it, was it, Telling a story that nobody knew about Jesse Owens, or was it not even, not even going there, just approaching on the merits itself? Um, it was actually on the merits of the seventeen other athletes. Um, I think it's really important to have the complete story, the complete perspective. In uh, 1936, after the Great Depression, as we're putting our country back together, eighteen African Americans made the team in 1936 right here um, in New York at Randall's Mm. Island. Mm. So when they popped on the SS Manhattan to head to Germany, they were all equal. There were Mm. 18 African-American athletes, 16 men, two women who had defied Jim Crow and were about to defy Adolf Hitler. So they are a unique group of athletes. No other set of athletes can make that claim in the history of the world. So that was very fascinating and intriguing to us um, as a filmmaking team. And we wanted to get to know these people and understand why their stories faded into obscurity. Mm. Why, why was, I mean, why, why was that? Again, I mean, let's say me, people may know Ralph Metcalf, but people generally don't know of everybody else yet, Archie Williams. Who they, maybe just, just for the record, we should just run down who these people were, who the other people were. Obviously, it's Jesse Owens, but who are the other people on this team? Everyone's going to help me out with this one. <laughs> Forgot, sure. Forgotten here, too. <laughs> no, no, no. I want to make sure that we right. capture all the names because it's critically important. And I'm going to start with the two women because they're the ones that are least yes. remembered, least recognized, and, and least rewarded in terms of their accomplishments. They are the first two black women to ever represent the United States in an Olympics Heidi Pickett hmm. and Louise Stokes, hmm. right? right? Do those names ring a bell? Oh no! You know the funny thing I told you when I no. Saw, 
<laughs> no, I mean, no, I that's knew, the problem. Right? Yeah, exactly. And that's the problem. Well, what I loved about that, I mean, I knew about Louis Stokes and Tiny Pickett. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't know. But, but what you did with them, I think they're great stories. But what you did is that you really dug deep uh, in those two. I mean, you really dug deep. But we'll get back to who they are after you know. But so you're going to name this. So Louis Stokes. Archie Williams. He gold medal in the 400. Dr. James Louval, mm-hmm. bronze in the 400. Fritz Pollard, mm. obviously son yes. of the legendary coach Fritz Pollard. He was a hurdler. He, he took a bronze medal. Cornelius Johnson, gold medal. Dave Albritton, mm. silver medal. Jack Wilson, boxer, silver mm. silver medal. Um, let's see who I'm leaving out. John Brooks, broad jump. And then we had more boxers. We had Howell King. Mm. We had... Um, who am I leaving out? Willis Johnson. Willis Johnson, yes. Howell King. Mac. Robinson. Mac, Mac Robinson, Robinson Jackie, Jackie Robinson's brother. Um, James Clark was also a boxer as well. Yeah. John Terry. And the weightlifter, John Terry. Right. And I think I think that obviously this was the largest contingent of, of black Olympians ever. And, and, and I think in each, succe- each succeeding year, the number was going to grow and grow. In fact, you know, the, number, the name I was trying to think of was Alice Coachman. 1948. Yeah, she 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 became the first. I think in that 48 Olympics, she was the first only American woman to win a high jumper. But it was because I I she also comes out of Tuskegee. Yes. And I think that that's the importance of Stokes, and Pickett, uh, in terms of women. And let me ask you this. I mean, I'm kind of jumping out of out of order here, but I'm wondering, because you're a black woman. By the way, she is a black woman. I am a black She's woman. A black woman. Uh, but I wonder if. Your sensibility as a black woman uh, is kind of what led you to dig deeper on Pickett and Stokes. Because, again, those names are kind of mentioned. Some people mention them and go a little bit in detail. But you really you really went deep in, the, in their stories, and it was a, an important story. Do you think it was your sensibility as a, as a black woman filmmaker that did it or, or just your curiosity? Well, I think it's a combination of both. I think it's a combination of telling the complete story and being accurate and not leaving out two people who are part of a contingency of 18 when they left new york they were all equal none of them had medals okay so through through the trials through the time on the boat through the opening ceremonies all things being equal any one of them could have won more than one medal so but for me it's a gender issue it's a race issue and louise and tidy were at the 1932 olympics and and they had a terrible experience they're being benched even though they were the best sprinters. So to understand their trajectory and to understand the trajectory of black women in sports, you really have to tell their story. And I think it, it reminds us of the courage and the contributions of black women in the 30s. It's uh, very rarely do you have the opportunity to see the lives of black women, courageous, athletic, student athletes um, in the right. 30s. Right. That's, not a, that's not a character you see very often in stories. And also, uh, just... Uh, I think it was a fascinating uh, story of how you got to that. You know how you you know, you, you told the story of of, uh, of, of Lady of Snow. But tell, I mean, I think that take us through how you actually got to the not just uh, the story of the whole telling that whole story of the unknowns of the seventeen unknowns. Well, you know, it's interesting because this film was not originally where we were going to be. Um, the research was about Valeda Snow, who was an African-American trumpet player, band leader, you know, jazz star, who was performing in Europe. And uh, much like so many other jazz artists, 
Hitler didn't like jazz. So she was in Europe at the wrong time, at the wrong place, and she was swept into a concentration camp. And I was astounded that there were African-Americans in concentration camps. Mm. Wow. And, uh, can you believe that? No. Obviously, you never hear that story. I've never heard that story ever, and I was shocked that and she wasn't the only one but she happened to be a famous jazz singer so there was you know a decent amount of information on her story so um what was interesting is when she came back to new york uh she was being interviewed and she remarked that she wished she had left when these guys left after the end of the 1936 olympics and that's when the light bulb Mm. went off and so this phenomenal woman her story led me to the story of these 18 people and then we embarked upon this four-year journey to to make this film and how does she end up there uh how does she out of the lady of snow? I, I, well, I don't want to stick on it but it is fascinating well, how does well, she, how she land it. up she, she she was no different from josephine baker and tons of other uh jazz musicians who went to europe because there was an opportunity to perform because the audiences you know welcomed them so for a long time in berlin jazz was welcomed and it was accepted. And then when Chancellor Hitler came into power, Mm. he deemed jazz degenerate music Mm. because Jewish musicians and black singers, you know, were in these clubs and and the kids were falling in love with what he considered to be monkey music. Mm. And so uh, in order to kind of make sure he could push his agenda, those clubs had to be closed and anyone pushing that needed to be detained. And when he was sweeping the clubs and and detaining everyone, she happened to be in one that day, wrong place, wrong time. And two years later, she was released from a camp. Did you do you know the numbers of blacks that were in concentration camps? Did you come across that? I don't know the numbers of them, but one of them actually became an editor at Ebony Magazine. Um, yes, wow. Hans. Yes. Oh, Hans Masakoy. Exactly. Because uh, you know what, Hans. I worked at Ebony. I worked at Ebony for yes. four years. Yes. And Hans from nineteen seventy four seventy eight. And Hans was one of my editors. Exactly. Uh, who was you know you know his his whole story. He was he grew up in Germany. His father his mother was German. I think his father was African. That's right. He's always kidding. They they had, I heard some of the great signifying things. Ebony Magazine, just about people's mothers and all that. <laughs> I mean, that's another. It makes but, sense. Yeah, but how? But oh, that's yeah, yeah. You remember? I, of course. Yes, yes. yes that, so those are the two that I'm most familiar with. There were others, but those two I'm most familiar with. Oh wow! Yeah, no, uh, great Hans Masakoy. That's right. Um, damn, I, you know, I had another question. There was Hans. That's just completely <laughs> blue, blue. Oh, uh, what I want the, the, the title because I think that's very important. How did you come up uh, with the title um, Olympic Pride? American prejudice. Um, how did you? Why? Why is that significant? Well, it, it's at Pride and Prejudice is actually Lacey, one of Lacey's favorite books. But um, the 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 irony and the paradox of the story is reflected in that title, because the irony and the paradox of of that title. Um, is reflected in the story of these characters. You know, when you're on the medal stand, there's great pride, right? Mm-hmm. The minute you step off, there's tremendous prejudice. Because for 10.4 seconds, everyone's cheering for you, and they love you. You are doing exactly what we want you to do. But if you come off that stand or if you come off that track and you ask to be a full citizen, or if you want the rights, right. it's not going to happen. That implicit bias kicks in, and there will be prejudice. Like today. Like, hmm. like today. Yeah, and, and, and you, you mentioned uh, what happened when they came back. You know, uh, and it is so so humbly, you know, uh, if you look at what happened when they came back to the United States, um, no matter how great they were there, 
they came back, and they were being, you know, I guess, I guess they were being used. They were being used. They were being used by everybody. Everybody was being used, <laughs> right? Well, well, that was a period of time where propaganda was incredible on both sides of the Atlantic. Everyone had an agenda. Everyone had a plan. Everyone needed to profit from something. So, and think about it. Before these athletes were even on the team, there was this huge boycott. Should we go? Should we not go? The NAACP had one perspective. The black newspapers had the other perspective. So it was really critically important that uh, these athletes be there for themselves, not just for all of the entities who, who had a stake in the game. Mm-hmm. Who are the hardest people to find? I mean, you, you, you found, you, you were dragging a lot of people out to the, who, <laughs> like how the hell did they get that person? The, the, the boxers. The, boxer, yeah. the boxers were the hardest people yeah. to find. Willis mm-hmm. Johnson mm-hmm. Um, yeah. was probably the hardest uh, one to find. Um, and, and I think everyone loved the track and field athletes. And, and the boxers, I think the German, the German uh, scholar in our film put it best. You know, the people cheered when when black guys got hit, right. but 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 uh, they applauded the track and field stars when they ran because they were tall and good looking. So uh, people tended to remember them more fondly, and so a lot of articles were written about those guys, and less articles written about the black boxers. I, I noticed with a couple of the boxers, I think that their their dates of death. You, you were unknown. Willis Johnson, Howell King, if anyone out there is from Detroit, Michigan, and they can tell us <laughs> who these gentlemen are, please go to our website and right. let us know. We don't know. Um, and and Lacey and, and Tandy and Mike, they looked everywhere they could possibly think of to find these guys. And it, and it, and it speaks to African-American record-keeping in the 30s and 40s and the 50s. You know, we weren't valued in that way so that being able to go to the Census Bureau and determine right. what happened to somebody. Last night at the Rio Olympics, history was made. There's quite a few lining up now. This is not clear cut at all. And it's going to be Manuel in lane three. Simone Manuel became the first African-American woman to medal in an individual swimming event. She tied for gold in the women's 100-meter freestyle. That audio is courtesy of NBC. Later, Manuel told reporters that while she hopes to be an inspiration to others, she says she would like there to be a day when she's more than just Simone the black swimmer. The title of black swimmer makes it seem like I'm not supposed to be able to win a gold medal or I'm not supposed to be able to break records. And that's not true because I work just as hard as anybody else and I love the sport and um, I want to win just like everybody else. (laughs) Here to talk about the significance of Simone Manuel's win is David Steele. He's a senior writer at Sporting News. Welcome to the studio. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, you've been watching the Olympics for a while. What was your initial reaction when you heard about her win? Uh, I was in shock, but in a pleasant way, of course. Uh, I was, it, it was odd because I was actually covering a football game, and I saw Twitter just blow up when the results uh, came across that she had won. And uh, I've been sort of paying attention to her because you so rarely see African-American swimmers at that level. So it was an incredibly exciting thing. And to see the reaction from everybody across the country, including family members uh, who were just thrilled to see this, it was an incredibly moving thing for me. As we heard in that tape, uh, Simone Manuel talking about being Simone the Black Swimmer. Um, and let's put this in context. 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 Looking at behavior in context. Now, whether he actually meant context, as I say it, I say the context is a system 
of racism, white supremacy. Context, because it was a struggle for black Americans to get access to public swimming pools for many decades. Um, That changed with desegregation. Uh, And so let's start in, say, 1955, because this was not an easy transition, right? What happened? Oh, not even close. Uh, Just the earliest part of the 20th century. Pools were segregated. Public pools were segregated all over the country. I mean, it, it absolutely was not limited to the South. If blacks were, were, if they were even allowed in the pools in these cities, they were allowed only on certain days. And when the Civil Rights Movement uh, started to go after that as well, because it was such a well-known, well-established part of basically a, of Jim Crow, whites resisted very violently. There were fights at pools, and there was this very infamous photo of a hotel manager in Florida pouring acid into the pool to try to get protesters out of the pool. This was a motel manager, James Brock, dumping uh, muriatic acid into the water. This was in June of 1964 uh, as uh, protesters were demonstrating uh, being blocked from the swimming pool. Um, Talk a little bit about how all of this history essentially established a stereotype about blacks and swimming. It was believed that blacks could not swim that there was something physiologic, sort of that pseudoscience that explained either black people's lack of success in a particular uh, sport or in a particular endeavor. The reality was, of course, that all those avenues had been blocked. They weren't allowed to, but black people weren't ever put in a position to swim. So the stereotype was built that they could not swim. Uh, there was this very famous uh, Nightline interview with Ted Koppel uh, about 30 years ago. It was a one of the anniversaries of Jackie Robinson's uh, entry into the major leagues, Al Campanis was a, base, was a Dodgers baseball executive. And in his explanation of why black people were not good at managing baseball, he included in there that blacks were not good at swimming. And he said, they're not good at swimming because they don't have the buoyancy. Fast forward to today. And are there more Simones out there? Are we seeing more and more people of color in competitive swimming in the U.S.? There are. In the Olympic trials before these uh, games in Rio began, there was more than one African-American swimmer. There are more than one at the college levels, which is where they produce the the swim clubs in, in, in a lot of these cities are becoming more integrated. And that's sort of the feeder to the Olympics. So I think this is going to be a big jumping off point, but this is also sort of the culmination of this sort of little by little advance of black people getting into the pool and being competitive because it's sort of, again, part of society opening up a little more and black people being in position to take advantage of the access that they were denied for so many decades uh, in this country's history. That's David Steele. He's senior writer at Sporting News. Thank you for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. Corinne Gaines, the woman in question here that was killed by police earlier this week, um, had filed a lawsuit a couple years ago against an apartment building that she lived in, claiming that she suffered from lead poisoning as a result of living there. Now, this was still going through the courts at the time that she was killed, but based on the lawsuit, she appeared to believe that she had been poisoned, and we know lead poisoning leads to cognitive impairment leads to potentially aggressive activity. Um, When we talk about macro problems, I mean, lead poisoning disproportionately affects African-American communities. As of this Sunday, the federal government will no longer pay for water filters, bottles, and other supplies to help the people in Flint, Michigan. The official state of emergency will end, although the city still has problems with pipes that have carried lead-tainted water into people's homes. Throughout Flint's water crisis, we have been checking in with Jenea McDonald. She's a substitute teacher and mother of two young children, 
And she's on the line with us again now. Hi, Janaya. Hi, Ari. Now, the state says it will pay. Do you have confidence that when responsibility for providing all of these services transfers from the federal government to the state government, the state government will be able to step up and do what's required? No, I don't have any confidence whatsoever. I don't. What has the financial impact been for you and your family having to take all these extra steps over the last nearly a year, even if the water is provided, just spending gas to drive around and pick it up and other associated expenses? It's hard. It's um, hard financially sometimes, like you said, just coming up with the gas money to go pick up water um, and to make sure you have enough to cook, to bathe with. It's sickening. At first, Justice used to think it was fun to open these water bottles. He's asking me daily, when are we going to be done with this? This is your son, Justice. Yeah. It's not fair. It's, it's, It's not right. And to top it off, things are getting worse here. How are things getting worse? Um, as of the last two weeks, we've been having problems with weekly trash pickup. And just within the last month, uh, a neighbor of mine who've been in her house for 40 years, she lost her house due to a foreclosure on her house because of an old water bill. The crying. It's not a night went by. We haven't heard gunshots. You know, there's a lot of things that's still going on here in this 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 community that no one's talking about. Jobs are non-existent and water is non-existent. You and I first met seven months ago in January, and it doesn't sound like anything has improved or dramatically changed since all that time ago. Nope. The election is here. Donald Trump gives you something new to talk about every day. So who's concerned with Flint? No one is concerned. We're a third world country right here in America. Um, even locally, it's not much talk about what's the next step. You know, even when the charges were brought out with the couple of officials, it was kind of brushed over. There wasn't much time put into it for me. To me, it doesn't seem like no one cares anymore. I know I've asked you this every time we've talked, but what are your thoughts about whether your family will stay in Flint or go somewhere else? Um, actually, Earl and I have really been discussing it. Um, Earl is your husband. Yes, my husband. And, um, we don't see a future here in Flint. Um, we do foresee a move coming. Hmm. Not sure how soon, but we do foresee a move coming. Um, it's, it's hard to try and plan a future with two young boys looking at what you see living daily here in Flint. Well, Janae McDonald, we are going to keep checking in with you and your family. I wish you all the best, and uh, it's good to talk to you again. Thank you so much. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me, and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. This is St. Louis Public Radio. A federal lawsuit is seeking big changes to criminal justice practices in more than a dozen St. Louis County cities. St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum reports. In the two years after Michael Brown's death, efforts to change Ferguson's government and criminal justice system received worldwide attention. 
But Thomas Harvey of Arch City Defenders consistently said the problem wasn't just relegated to Ferguson's borders. There are an additional 80 towns that have their own court. And until all of those courts and police departments end these practices, it won't really change people's lives. Arch City Defenders helped file a federal lawsuit against 13 St. Louis County cities for violating the constitutional rights of people accused of ordinance violations. Harvey says these municipalities are operating modern-day debtors' prisons. This is an attempt to relieve the sort of criminalization of poverty and black life in our region and to end this conspiracy to jail people because they're too poor to make a payment. Quentin Thomas is one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit. It needs to be stopped or a change needs to happen because a lot of people have lost jobs, careers, homes. One link between the cities is that they use St. Anne's Jail to house prisoners. The suit contends that jail is in deplorable condition, which St. Anne City Administrator Matt Conley strongly disputes. Our jail is relatively modern and very clean. We're somewhat mystified by those statements. Among other things, the suit is seeking monetary damages for the plaintiffs and for the cities to commit to changing how they operate. So why did you file a lawsuit against these 13 cities? We're trying to end the practice of debtors' prisons and cash bail once and for all um, and to end this system that is systematically violating the civil rights of poor people and black people in our region. And frankly, I think, as, as we've talked about before, it's really um, hopefully going to begin be the beginning of the end of the municipal court system as we know it. Um, the abuses that we've described both in Ferguson and Jennings and St. Anne and Velda City and now these 13 cities um, should be taken seriously. And I think we ought to really consider whether or not we want this system to continue. Every time I've interviewed you, or most times I've interviewed you, one of the questions I ask you is, if we just focus on Ferguson, things are not going to get better in St. Louis County if every other city is engaging in the practices they were accused of. Is this an attempt to broaden the focus and make people's lives better? Absolutely. This is this is an attempt to, to relieve the sort of criminalization of poverty and black life in our in our region and just to, to end this, to end this conspiracy to jail people because they're too poor to make a payment. Um, you're right that I've, I've often said that if, if, if we only focused on the city of Ferguson, we'll be missing the broader point because there are an additional 80 towns that have their own court. And until all of those courts and police departments end these practices, it won't really change people's lives in this region. And we're hopefully that this we're hoping that this suit will bring about an end to those practices and make real change in people's lives. For what you're asking for, besides monetary damages for the plaintiffs, you want a federal court to basically declare these cities are engaging in unconstitutional practices and ordering them to stop. Is that correct? That's right. This would be very similar to what we asked for and obtained in, in the city of Jennings. Um, have the federal court enter into an order uh, making some statements about the legitimacy, the illegitimacy of jailing people because they're too poor to make a payment and then adopting some reforms to their court system that will make it more fair and just for everybody. Is there any reason you chose these 13 cities and not, say, other cities that take in a lot of revenue, like ones in, in Central and West County? So, so these cities are, are held together by St. Anne and the availability of St. Anne's jail. Every one of the cities that we've sued contracts with the city of St. Anne in order to jail people because they don't have a jail that's big enough to hold people overnight. 
So without renting space, without renting jail space from the city of St. Anne's jail, they couldn't they couldn't uh, execute on this scheme. So there are there are other cities that we intend to bring lawsuits against, against, but this suit itself is unified by their use of the city of St. Anne's jail. And from reading the lawsuit, one of the big issues and one of the reasons you feel that there's constitutional violations here is just the conditions in this jail are are really really bad. Is that correct? Absolutely. We to to a person we have. We have heard horrific things. Um, one of our plaintiffs was held there for a two-week period, was not allowed to change her clothes. She was uh, menstruating at the time and was not provided feminine hygiene products. This is a very common complaint that we hear from women who are often the victims of these um, these institutions. And that th- it's because these jails are not made, really, for overnight, They and, and they crowd people into. There's 42 beds available, I think, at, at the St. Anne Jail. But in certain cells, there'll be people, mo- many more people than the jail is supposed to hold, according to our clients, are being crammed into these places. They're not provided blankets. They're not provided adequate nutrition. Um, it's, it's a place where clients of ours who have spent time in state prison have said they'd rather be in state prison than in the St. Anne Jail. So you mentioned before that you've you've done lawsuits against other cities. I think Florissant, Jennings, Ferguson, Velda City, uh, St. Louis County as well. They're not a city, but they are a municipality in some instances right. in unincorporated areas. What has kind of been the 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 pushback from these cities when you do this? I know that Jennings eventually settled, but have you found that some of the other places that you've sued are are, are willing to fight tooth and nail against this? So with with the exception of Ferguson, uh, we've had very successful uh, negotiations and settlement discussions with the towns. Once we brought the practices to their attention, they've adopted some reforms and made real change. Uh, the St. Louis County lawsuit that you described is about the use of wanteds, and we're too early in that lawsuit to really know. Um, so we haven't gotten into any settlement discussions. So we've We've tried to contact either city attorneys or city officials for all of these cities. I mean, some are still reading the lawsuit. Others sure. are not commenting. But do you have any early expectations or heard any early reactions of how these cities are, are, are reacting to this and what you expect from, from, from the, the proceedings ahead? So I don't know who the city attorney is for every one of these cities, but um, we do know that the lawyers for Curtis Hines, Garrett and O'Keefe are city attorneys for many of these cities. We've had a, a very good experience with them thus far, again, with the exception of the city of Ferguson's lawsuit. We've had a very good experience with those lawyers and sat down and had productive conversations, and we expect that we'll have the same type of conversations with them at least early on. If this, if they all decide like to take a similar path as Jennings and say, we're going to change our ways, we're going to institute new practices— Again, this is not all of St. Louis County. This is 13 cities. You still have to do more. How do you think that will make people's lives better in St. Louis County? Well, if you think about what's going on in Jennings right now, there no one is being jailed for the failure to pay a fine. People are not being threatened with jail. Warrants are not being issued when someone is unable to make a payment. If they miss a court date, they're being sent a letter. They're getting phone calls. The process is much more fair. That's resulted in a, a lower number of people going, having to go to court, being required to go to court on a daily basis, and fewer people are being held in their jail. We're hoping that we will end the practice permanently 
of jailing people because of their poverty. There are ways to address the issues that um, confront our clients that don't have anything to do with jailing or excessive fines and fees. If we want to get serious about public safety, the answer isn't to assess a fine to someone who's indigent. The answer is to put them in contact with someone who can help them fix their car, show them the path to get their driver's license reinstated, help them obtain their vehicle registration. There, there are services available and a network of uh, social services available. Courts haven't traditionally acted that way, but that's something that they could do in the future. The thing that everybody was talking about this week, the guy they call Officer Slam. This guy body slammed this oh, yeah, I saw. this 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 sixteen year old black girl in, in class. I mean she would not give up her phone, yeah. uh, which was wrong, and then she wouldn't leave the room, which is wrong. But he compounded it by I think this is just horrendous to, to treat a, a child like this, a, a teenager. Um, but I also have sympathy for people in authority because I think parents just let kids do anything nowadays, so they never listen to authority. Last night, a vigil was held at Cesar Chavez and Breed Streets in Boyle Heights for 14-year-old Jesse Romero. That's a location where Romero was fatally shot by LAPD officers on Monday evening. Across the country, there's been a whole lot of concern recently about excessive force at the hands of law enforcement officers. But this may also be an issue in the nation's schools. Over the past five years, there have been at least 84 instances of kids being tasered or shot by stun guns. It's an issue education reporter Rebecca Klein has been looking into for the Huffington Post, and she joins us now. Welcome to Take Two. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You have been looking into the role of police officers in schools along with a group called the Hetchinger Report. Uh, As you write, there has been a, a real uptick in the presence of police officers on school campuses. Remind us why that is. Yeah, so starting about Two decades ago, um, as America started enacting more tough-on crime laws, and uh, in addition to the influence of things like Columbine and other shootings in schools like Sandy Hook, policymakers really began looking for ways to to keep kids safe. So um, police were seen as one way of doing that. And what specifically do they do on school campuses when they're stationed there? That's a good question. Um, So ostensibly, they're there to put in emergency plans in case there is intruders. Um, They do a lot of the security as far as visitors are concerned. Um, But fairly, sometimes they're put in positions where they also do some disciplining of kids. So uh, they suspend kids, they uh, arrest kids. Um, and in these rare cases, we see that they, they sometimes tease their kids. And your piece in the Huffington Post begins with one such incident that happened in a place called Nightdale, North Carolina. What happened there? Yeah, so this followed a, a student named Scott. He was a junior at the time. It was in March. Um, and he got in a really small scuffle with another student. Um, no one was injured. There was just pushing and, and shoving. He ended up on the ground ultimately after the fight, and so did the other student. Um, but before he could get up, a police officer came over and sat on him, um, told him to put his hands behind his back. Scott said that he couldn't because uh, he was twisted and mangled in a very uncomfortable position. Um, so in order to gain compliance, he was tasered with thousands of volts of electricity. Um, and then he was arrested and charged with disorderly conduct and resisting an officer. What do we know about how often and and where these sorts of incidents of students being tasered happen? We don't know a whole lot, and that's a big problem. 
Um, so I got my information from tracking local, hyperlocal news reports of it happening all over the country for the past five years. But no one is systematically tracking this. There's no state-level collection. There's no federal collection. And in many cases, school districts at the very local level aren't even tracking this. So we have no idea how often it's happening, where it's happening in particular. Um, and it's something we should really start looking at. And in terms of those hyperlocal news stories that you discovered, did you sense any sorts of trends in terms of what age kids, uh, racial breakdown, gender, things of that nature? Yeah, so we found it was mostly in high schools. Uh, it was definitely in a handful of middle schools that this was happening. Um, it, it was mostly male from what we could tell um, in these stories, these, ki- these kids' names aren't released, obviously, because most of the time they're under 18. But from what we could tell, they're mostly male. Um, we didn't have a good sense of the racial breakdown. But what we do know is there are more police in schools where there tend to be higher populations of students of color. And what do the schools themselves have to say or the officers stationed there about why they're using tasers and stun guns? Yeah, from the people who I spoke to, um, the police officers said, you know, these might be children, but they don't look like children. They're not built like children. Uh, The student who I followed, Scott, he's over six feet and he's a football player and he's a big kid. So um, even though these are children, it seems as though the police officers saw them as adults and saw that if they had seen two adults getting on the street, uh, getting in a fight on the street, that's how they would have responded. Um, so they just took it and applied the same logic in schools. Do you have any sense of how much training that these officers who are stationed on these campuses have had in terms of using these things? Because we've heard reports of officers getting trained and they can be hard to use and they get the wrong spot or use too much voltage or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so they get whatever training the police department gives them. A lot of times police officers who are stationed in schools don't get extra training on how to deal with kids. Um, They just take the training that they get from their police department and they apply it in this different setting. Um, So I don't I can't really speak to how much training they get on tasers specifically, but it's whatever their police department would give them, I assume. Now, you've uh, interviewed a number of uh, people about the effect that this can have when a teenager or kid is tasered. Let's start off with the physical impact. What's known about that? Yeah, so uh, TASER itself, they have a warning in their instructor manual saying that uh, you should refrain from using these weapons on on children if you can. Um, Small children, um, it is more likely to cause cardiac arrest, which can obviously be fatal. Uh, In addition, TASERs, they have the effect of of making you fall down. And and if you're a child, that can, you know, there's one case of a kid, he ended up in a coma for a number of months after falling down um, after being tased. Um, so I, I think Taser, the company itself, would be the first to tell you that these weapons should only be used on kids in very rare occurrences. And what about the psychological impact of this? Having, you know, being at school, a police officer uh, hits you with a Taser gun, and what can that do to a kid? Yeah, it's certainly a very traumatizing experience. Um, I think that it's probably very humiliating for these kids. Um, These are things that become well-known in their school. Um, I think that it can make them less trusting of authority figures, less trusting of police officers. And also, I think it makes them feel like a criminal. So I think it's really easy to internalize that, and uh, it could have a really big impact on your self-esteem and confidence. 
Rebecca, what outlets or, or options do kids have after they're tasered? You, know, you mentioned this one instance in North Carolina. How has the family there responded to what's happened? So actually, in this specific case, um, the family was extremely upset, so much so that the mother decided to take her son and put him in night school for the rest of the year. She didn't mm-hmm. feel safe having him in school on a day-to-day basis when she knew a police officer would be present. She felt like it was completely out of her control what could happen to him and that she assumed he would be safe at school and now she didn't know. Um, So he finished out the year in night school. Uh, He's going to be going back to school full-time for his senior year, Um, but but they're extremely nervous. Um, They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what repercussions there might be. Rebecca Klein, backtracking for a bit, as we mentioned, the whole reason why police officers are now stationed in schools more often is because of a, a thought that they could keep students safer in the wake of, of some of the shootings that we've seen happen on campuses. Is there any evidence that, in fact, their presence there is making a difference? So the evidence is pretty mixed. Um, anecdotally, obviously, there's a handful of instances in which school school police officers have stopped school shooters or armed intruders. Um, But those are pretty far and and few between. Um, Overall, we know that kids are, it it is feeding them into the juvenile justice system in some cases, but we don't really know how overall it's impacting a school's culture, how it's impacting overall school crime. Um, We don't know if it's making kids safer. Rebecca Klein is the editor of Education News with the Huffington Post. You can find a link to her story, which is titled Set to Sadan. It's on our website, which is, of course, take2.org. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Now, let me just say, we have extraordinary appreciation and respect for the vast majority of police officers who put their lives on the line to protect us every single day. They've got a dangerous job. It is a tough job. Baltimore Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake said today she is committed to implementing the police reforms demanded in a scathing report by the U.S. Justice Department. WYPR's Kenneth Burns reports on the department's findings and the reaction in the city. The mayor did not sugarcoat the findings. The findings are challenging to hear. At the same time, she said Baltimore did not wait around for the 163-page report to begin making changes. The city has taken first steps in a long path to reform, and we've begun to see real benefits. Among those first steps was issuing officers body cameras in May, adding cameras to record what happens in the back of police transport wagons, an issue that came up in the Freddie Gray case, and updating the department's use of force policy. The mayor said police have implemented 26 reforms thus far. But what she didn't say was who was responsible for the practices in the police department so sharply criticized in the report. She blamed the system. A system is not an individual. Um, That being said, I'm responsible for ushering in the meaningful reforms that have taken place thus far, and I am certainly committed uh, to making the meaningful reforms moving forward. The report that leaked last night and was officially released this morning lays out a pattern of systematic discrimination in the Baltimore Police Department. Officers made unconstitutional stops, searches, and arrests. They used excessive force when it wasn't necessary. And they retaliated against people exercising their First Amendment rights. The report said officers recorded more than 300,000 pedestrian stops between January 2010 and May 2015. But they said the true number is likely far higher due to underreporting. 
Nearly half of those stops happened in two small, predominantly African-American districts that make up a small percentage of the city's population. African-Americans have been stopped at disproportionate rates, 82% of all vehicle stops. The report also said zero tolerance under Mayor Martin O'Malley eroded the trust between communities and the police, and that legacy continues to drive policing in certain neighborhoods. City Councilman Brandon Scott said he was not surprised by the report, and no one else should be either. Anyone that has lived in Baltimore in my lifetime shouldn't be surprised by the report. And for me, uh, I didn't need the report to tell me this. I'm a young black man in Baltimore. This is what I grew up, especially growing up with zero tolerance policing. Meanwhile, Councilman Nick Mosby was only surprised at the degree of discrimination. I mean, when you see the level of, um, you know, how many stops and to, uh, you know, what individuals and, you know, how many complaints to um, internal affairs and how many were actually acted on, you know, those type of, you know, raw numbers and statistics um, are really glaring. Senator Ben Cardin issued a statement calling the report disturbing. And he added nothing less is owed to Freddie Gray's family than to have his tragic death provide the catalyst for an overhaul of BPD that rebuilds the trust between the police and the communities they serve. Congressman Elijah Cummings said in a statement that the statistics are astounding and that the report validates what so many residents in Baltimore City already know, that trust between law enforcement and the communities they serve has been repeatedly violated and is in desperate need of repair. David Roca, the senior staff attorney at ACLU Maryland, also says the report validates what people have been saying for a very long time. We also retain some measure of hope that it will be the necessary catalyst for long overdue reform. Residents in Sandtown, where Freddie Gray was arrested, also were not surprised. Khalil Muhammad said he has been stopped by officers on numerous occasions. For no reason, ran my pockets and harassed without provocation. So this is something that us as black inner city people have been living with for a long time. But he said the report is valuable only if it brings on changes in the police department. But if, if there ain't going to be no changes made behind it, What's the use? Robert Gaddy, a Towson resident who grew up in Sandtown, said much of the same thing. The whole thing is, what are you doing about it? What are you going to do about it? He said the problem is compounded by a lack of jobs and educational opportunities. A lot of people, arrest record and level of education won't allow them to end an opportunity. First, you have to have the opportunity. Somebody have to believe in you and, and say, well, I'm going to give this guy, this young man or this young lady a chance. And that's not happening. Not even with the uh, the previous mayors, even going back to Kirk Smoke. The report also recognizes that Baltimore police officers have a hard job, especially in neighborhoods where officers deal with complex social problems rooted in poverty, racial segregation, and deficient educational, employment, and housing opportunities. Mayor Rawlings-Blake said she has and will continue to deal with social problems while her administration works on police reform. She said they're working to bring more jobs to the city and remove blight, and that officials are optimistic about new leadership in the city school system. I'm not sitting around and nobody is sitting around till we solve poverty before we make police reforms. No one is sitting around before we solve the issues of um, you know, discrimination or um, you know, poor housing or any of the challenges that Baltimore faces along with other cities. We're, we're not going to solve all these problems before we address um, the, the, 
the needed reforms. The report and the call for change is not new territory for Police Commissioner Kevin Davis. He was a deputy chief in Prince George's County when that police department entered into a consent decree with the Justice Department in 2004. That agency served a population with demographics similar to that of the city of Baltimore. What I know is that we came out of that consent decree a better and stronger agency. Davis said he has made moves to help the Baltimore Department move forward faster. He started by hiring two people familiar with Justice Department investigations and consent decrees. He also said the department has established a team to make sure the department is compliant with the federal government. This is something that is historically done after the findings. It's another unique thing with Baltimore and this DOJ investigation that Baltimore should be proud of. Davis did not say whether the department was surprised by the findings, just that he is very, very concerned by some of the information in the report. I have no tolerance for any person who is privileged enough to wear this uniform if they choose to engage in racist, sexist, discriminatory, or biased-based policing. Davis also didn't say if he will clean house, but he made it clear that he is willing to hold his officers accountable. I fired six police officers in 2016 alone. That's a small number, but those, those who have left this agency deserve to leave this agency. So what happens now? City officials and the Justice Department have entered into an agreement that guides the negotiations for a consent decree that will be enforced by a federal court. The decree will include federal monitoring of the police department. The negotiators will seek input from residents, community groups, city leaders, local businesses, and officers as they craft the decree. Negotiations are expected to be complete by November the 1st. Mayor Rawlings-Blake said she anticipates the city will have to spend between 5 to $10 million annually to implement the reforms. That number is based on what other cities in similar situations had to pay. I'm Kenneth Burns for 88.1 WYPR. I think this country was built on gangs. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this country still is run on gangs. Republicans, Democrats, the police department, the FBI, the CIA, those are gangs. In Chicago, police relations with the community have been tense for a while. Last November, the city released a video from 2014 that showed an officer shooting a black teenager 16 times. Now videos of a police shooting from this summer have added to the problem. There have been protests, as in the past, and also a report that gang members are planning to retaliate by targeting officers. Community activists call it ludicrous and say this is simply an attempt to take the heat off police. NPR's Cheryl Corley reports. It was nearly one week ago today that body cam and dash cam videos of police chasing and shooting 18-year-old Paul O'Neill, a car theft suspect, were released. They showed a chaotic scene with police officers running, guns drawn, trying to capture O'Neill, who at one point had sideswiped a police car before leaving his car behind. The videos don't show O'Neill being shot, but they do show how confused officers were. And they shot at us too, right? I shot at the car after it almost hit you. O'Neill, who authorities said was unarmed, died from a gunshot wound to the back at a hospital later that day, July 28th. Three of the police officers involved were later stripped of their police powers. The shooting prompted more protest here. Then came a newspaper report that said leaders from three of the city's West Side gangs met to map out plans to shoot police officers in retaliation. Chicago police won't verify the department issued an alert, but Superintendent Eddie Johnson downplayed the possibility when he talked to reporters this week. CPD, we get threats uh, probably weekly. 
in terms of uh, violence against police officers. Um, we always are concerned about it. It's not going to make us panic, but it will make us uh, concerned and make sure that we make our officers as safe as we can. Today, community and anti-violence activists gathered in front of the Chicago Police Department's Area 4 headquarters on the city's west side. Teal Hardiman says the shootings of police officers in Baton Rouge and Dallas may have police on edge, but he says reports of people plotting to harm police officers in Chicago is simply incorrect. What happened in Dallas, we had a lone wolf. It has nothing to do with the young brothers in Chicago, and especially the west side, okay? The truth of the matter, when Laquan McDonald was executed, nobody attacked no police in Chicago. So what make you think somebody going to attack the police after Paul O'Neill was shot and killed? The video of the 2014 shooting of Laquan McDonald, shot 16 times by a police officer, sparked massive protest in the city. In addition, says Hardiman, there is no longer any structured gang leadership in the city. The young men in Chicago are not a threat to the police department. Young men in Chicago are too busy fighting one another. They don't have time to think about attacking no police. The Fraternal Order of Police has in part blamed the attorney for the O'Neill family for helping to instigate any threats against police. That attorney is Michael Oppenheimer. He filed a wrongful death lawsuit on behalf of the family and called the O'Neill shooting one of the most horrific he's seen. In any event, nobody wants anything to happen to these officers. Officers put their lives on the line every day. There's already been a tragedy for the O'Neill family, and we don't want any further tragedy. Activists at the police headquarters, like Eric Russell, agree, but add that reports of threats about violence against Chicago police are simply an effort to derail the Black Lives Matter movement and to push a Blue Lives Matter proposed city ordinance. To make it a hate crime for anybody that encounters the Chicago police. And an effort, the activists say, to allow police to act aggressively against protesters, a charge the police superintendent denies. Cheryl Corley, NPR News, Chicago. Never, never, never I say, for the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. Never, never, never I say, because the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. Members of the Legislative Black Caucus here at the Capitol not happy about this incident. Career Tech telling us they were notified of the incident after it happened and their investigation was swift. Shocked by the fact that this would transpire. And disbelief from the state director at Career Tech in Stillwater. Marcy Mack says a retired agriculture teacher from Elk City was being recognized for nearly 40 years of service during their annual summer conference in Oklahoma City last week. This session was to honor retirees. The 70-year-old later called an African-American colleague on stage where he reportedly presented him with a KKK robe, Confederate flag, and made racist comments. It has been explained to us that these were a potential joke. The Ku Klux Klan uh, is a dangerous organization. State Senator Kevin Matthews is with the Oklahoma Black Caucus. He says while this matter is unfortunate, Career Tech is rapidly taking care of the matter. They have already uh, looked at their policies. They've already decided that they need uh, somewhat of an inclusion officer, a person uh, at a senior level that uh, would be responsible for diversity. And says the caucus has been in touch with the teacher who was hurt by the incident and simply wants it to go away. Now, Career Tech says they do not condone what happens, and we're not naming those teachers because we want to make sure we reached out to them first. We did reach out to that retired teacher and haven't heard back. Live from the Capitol, Katrina Adger, KOCO 5 News. We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney 
and eight others knew all of this history. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches. Not random, but as a means of control, a way to terrorize and oppress. An act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion. An act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. Recently, a man who is in the same prison as Dylan Roof, the person who shot up a, a church in South Carolina, killing nine individuals, uh, beat Dylan Roof in the face by punching him in the face in the back of the neck. Now, that story became such a headline that Dwayne Stafford, the man who did assault Dylan Roof in prison, has basically garnered enough support to be released on bond. Okay, so he had a $100,000 bond. He had been serving time in prison since January of 2015 after he was arrested on charges of first-degree assault and strong-arm robbery. Now, I should note that he has not stood trial yet, which is why he was just released on bond. He didn't have the money to do it before, but because of the uh, crowdfunding, uh, people had contributed to his commissary account. And also, we don't know exactly who it is. It could be one person. It could be a few people. Uh, he got enough money to be released until his trial date. Look, I don't think you should reward bad behavior. What I do think is interesting about this story is that he's been in prison since January of 2015 waiting trial in a country that's supposed to offer you or give you a quick and speedy trial. That's almost like it's in the Constitution. Yeah, weird, right? Yet, uh, if you're powerless, eh, let you sit in jail for a long, long time. Uh, I actually really don't like this story. Uh, I think that, of course, what Roof did was as horrific an act as you can imagine. Um, but if we start rewarding vigilante justice, that's a really bad precedent to set. So now that Dwayne Stafford raised this money and is, can make bail because he assaulted someone else in jail, what else does that lead to? Yeah, it's I'm a bad door to open. I think what I'm worried about with cases like this is the message that it sends to people, yes. right? So if you reward bad behavior, which is an inmate, you know, violently assaulting another inmate, well, what happens in the future, right? If there's a mass shooter who ends up in prison, are inmates going to attack? I mean, inmates are going to attack regardless, okay? We know that that happens behind bars. No, but if they think they're going to get paid for it, they will definitely that's, attack more. That's what I was going to say. Yes, I think that that gives them more of an incentive, and we don't want to give them more of an incentive. And by the way, don't get me wrong, I'm going to be honest with you guys, right? There's the human nature part of me that's like, yes, 
get them, right? But that's not right. Like, you have to go against what human nature tells you and think logically about situations like this and, and think about what the right thing is, and we shouldn't advocate for anyone to assault anyone else in prison. Look, if we have vigilante justice, then we're going to have anarchy. So it's a bad idea in and of itself. But also, on top of that, at some point, they're going to get the wrong guy. And then you're going to go, oops, uh, yeah, I guess we shouldn't encourage that. Don't encourage it. Don't give money to people who assault others, uh, even if you can't stand the people that they assaulted. Uh, but Anna, you're also right that this is not a, a speedy trial. This is outrageous no. that he's been in jail for that long uh, without any trial. What if he didn't do it? That's, that's and exactly then you just right. spent like years of your life in, a, in jail, which is totally unfair. It's insane. I can't even believe. I can't believe it. And I know people are like, oh, well, maybe he's, he's probably guilty. You don't know that. You don't know that. That's the reason why we have trials, right? And that's why it's supposed to be a quick and speedy trial to ensure that a person isn't just locked away behind bars for years on end before they before we determine whether or not they're guilty. This is um, this is a problem that comes with how the system is structured. Everyone is going to agree. No one's going to say, oh yeah, we should totally have vigilantes in jail beating up the guys that we don't like. It's why there's people put in certain sections. Dylan Roof is in protective areas of right. the prison, right? Because this is obviously what happened. Even if they don't think they're going to get famous or infamous for beating him in prison, so. It's hard to call this happening, so I don't know how people would think. It's the same way you think someone's going to go viral on the Internet. Somebody's going to pick up on this. I beat up the famous guy who everyone hates outside of the prison, and I'm going to get something for this. I can see how you could think that, and therefore it would be anarchy. I hear you. But whose responsibility is it to stop this? We talk about the police violence all the time, and uh, so the main thing is none of these police generally, that's a big generalization, but most of these police don't get convicted. They circle the wagons, and they make sure that these guys don't get convicted. So therefore, the anger that arises from it is higher. It's tenfold. So if you actually do something about the fact these cops are doing things that are wrong when they are wrong, less people will be so ready to jump on every one of them. So you should protect your cops, first of all, by doing right by them, by going through the system correctly. That's one kind of part of it. If the stories didn't, didn't come about Dylan Roof going to Burger King after them going on a fucking manhunt to catch this armed and dangerous individual who'd murdered multiple people that maybe this many people wouldn't be so upset about him being taken in and treated with kids' gloves, and then when someone beats his ass, they want to give him enough money to get out. So that inspiration doesn't start with someone just hating Dylan Roof because of his face. They hate him because of what the system did to yes. allow him to be hated so much. And if you start right from the top, you have power. You're the fucking system. If you're right, then no one will even be so upset at you. You might be able to balance this out a little bit so the only people who are inspired by hateful acts are hateful people rather than people who just don't like the hateful acts that you keep doing. Dude, I totally, believe me, I totally get it. Because I think about those victims and the victims' families and the message that we sent by allowing that guy to stop at Burger King after he gunned down innocent people in a church, right? Like, I get it. I get the anger. But here's the thing. Being an adult sucks. Because being an adult, no, 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 the, the worst part about being an adult is that you constantly have to do things that go against human nature. Mm -hmm. And human nature tells me, yeah, root for that guy. Dylan Roof fucking deserves it, right? But it's not the right way to go about it because it has long-term ramifications that are potentially disastrous for people in prison. And I don't, I don't want that. Yeah, uh, but I will disagree with JR on this. Look, you're right. The, the way the system treats people differently is further maddening. Um, and the fact that they were so pleasant to Roof when they picked him up, and they have not been so pleasant to people who are actually totally innocent, 
uh, in other circumstances and, and killed unarmed people over and over again. It does, it further enrages people. But trust me, Dylan Roof, after having killed nine people in that church, he, and he saying he did it because he's a white supremacist, right. etc. He was going to get beat down in jail no matter what. And, and my real beef is actually, in this case, is with the prison guards. I don't know when, why all of a sudden law does not apply inside a prison. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you go into prison. Oh, well, of course they're going to let you beat people down. There's going to be rape. rape. Yeah. And they're going to do all these things. So I wish they would apply the law equally no matter what, even to protect a monster like Roof. This anxiety about black people moving through public space, right, or moving through uh, residential neighborhoods, there's the sense that they don't think we belong there. And so I am looking for the law to stop saying that white fear, right, and white property matters more than black life. This is the State of Things from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Frank Stacio. In the early hours of Sunday morning, a 20-year-old African-American man was shot to death in North Raleigh. 9-11 tapes feature the accused shooter, Chad Cameron Copley, declaring himself a member of a neighborhood watch organization who fired what he called a warning shot that hit Corin Rodney Bernard Thomas. Thomas was attending a party in the neighborhood. News and Observer reporter Ron Gallagher joins me now. Welcome, Ron. Hi, Frank. Glad to be with you. Good to talk with you. What do we know about what happened on Sunday morning? Well, we we know from the 9-11 calls, uh, which we believe to be Chad Copley. Uh, by law, those people who call 9-11 are never identified, but it's pretty well understood that was him on the phone. Uh, his version uh, that he gave a 9-11 operator was that there was a lot of noise going on in the neighborhood, uh, that there was, had been some sort of vandalism, didn't specify, uh, and that he apparently, uh, he claimed to have seen firearms displayed. Um, the version that uh, some uh, one of the kids who had been to a, the party up the street uh, gave to one of my colleagues uh, yesterday was that he said it was pretty quiet. What actually happened, we'll have to wait to see. And there were a couple of conversations, the initial conversation, apparently, again, on the 9-11 tape. He's talking with the operator, said he was locked and loaded. He was going to secure the neighborhood. Uh, so at that point, the operator's trying to get more details. Is that right? Right. She, uh, she, she is pretty desperately trying to get him to explain what's going on. Uh, you know, she obviously believes there's a problem, but... Uh, She's trying to understand what what's happening. Uh, he, you know, he said there was something going on outside. Beyond that, it, it isn't too clear at that right. point. Initially, he talked about hoodlums. Now, let's listen to a little bit more of that 9/11 tape. Uh, I yelled at him, "Please uh, leave the premises." Uh, they were showing a, a firearm, so I, I, I fired a warning shot, and uh, we we got somebody that that, that got hit. Okay, so somebody was shot? Uh, well, I don't know if they're shot or not, ma'am. I, I fired my warning shot like I'm supposed to by law. And uh, okay. we got people. Uh, they, okay. do have, they do have firearms, and I'm trying to protect myself and my family. I've okay, who was it? So who was it to come to your house? Ma'am, I don't know who they are. There's a park right down the road. Did they just show up? Sir, did they just show up at your house? I'm going to send them over there, sir, but I need to know what's going on. Blackmailed outside my freaking house, firearms. 
Okay. Sir, is anyone shot? So that is apparently reporting the shooting, uh, the 9-11 tape. Uh, Copley has been charged with first-degree murder and denied bail. Can you tell us more about what's happening to uh, the the man on that 9-11 call right now? Um, Well, at this point, as you say, he's being held without bond or bail, which uh, is standard. Um, They had, you know, his first appearance in court yesterday. Uh, That's usually pretty pro forma. Uh, people charged with first-degree murder told that they could face the death penalty uh, or the alternative being life in prison without parole if they're convicted of first degree. Uh, so at this point, the uh, you know the DA will be collecting their case. The uh, defense attorney, and understand he's going to be represented by a public defender, they'll be getting their arguments together, and uh, probably not too far in the future there'll be you know another hearing to kind of decide how it moves forward. All right. Chad Copley accused of first-degree murder is white. The victim is African-American, and you heard him on the tape say they're friggin' black males in front of my house. Obviously, this has racial overtones. What's going on in the neighborhood? Has there been a community response? So far, there isn't that we're aware of. Um, I have not been to the neighborhood. My colleagues have. It seems to be pretty much a you know what you call a modest uh single neighborhood of single family homes in North Raleigh. Uh, the street that this happened on, Single Leaf Lane, uh, runs, it's east of uh, Lewisburg Road, and it, you know, strictly a residential street. It runs down as a cul-de-sac that runs into a you know, green space right next to the Noose River. Uh, you know, it's not the, I guess you never expect this anywhere, but yeah. it would seem to be an unusual neighborhood to run into this kind of conflict. All right, Ron, thanks so much for talking with us. Sure, glad to do it. Ron Gallagher is a reporter with the News and Observer. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 13th, 2016. So I have been told uh, this is our weekly compensatory call-in chime in if you have thoughts to share observations things that have taken place over the last seven days that you would like to comment on the number to dial 641-715-3640 the code is 564-943-POUND press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Certainly you can follow us on Twitter at Until Justice. Until Justice, uh, if you'd like to follow on Twitter, you can drop us an email, untiljustice at gmail.com, untiljustice at gmail.com. This is listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive, racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not in the PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. 
Thanks again to all the folks who have invested throughout the years. I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. A couple quick things uh, get to before uh, we get to some of the folks who dialed in uh, via the phone line. This is the two-year anniversary of the shooting, killing of Michael Brown uh, in Ferguson, the summer of 2014, August of 2014. I didn't play any clips uh, about that uh, this week. Uh, I know it was mentioned. I know they had a memorial service, and and folks kind of went through the standard procedure uh, with all of that. It's not that uh, I don't think that it is worthy of time and energy to recognize that, but just within the system of racism, white supremacy, I mean, really, if we were going to talk about anniversaries, this week was also the two-year anniversary of the shooting of John Crawford III uh, at the Walmart in Ohio. That was also 2014 and was literally two days before the shooting death of Michael Brown Jr. This was also the two-year anniversary of Michelle Cousseau, uh, who was also shot and killed uh, in Phoenix, Arizona in 2014, August of 2014, uh, where she was having some mental health issues. Don't we all, as victims of racism, uh, enforcement officials were called and they shot and killed her. Uh, This is the five-year anniversary of the shooting death of Mark Duggan uh, in the U.K., that happened in England, which sparked the 2011 what they call riots that went on for about a week or so uh, around England. We talked about that, did extensive programs about that uh, back if you go back five years, uh, 2011, and look uh, for the August archives. We did tons and tons and tons of programs. Uh, that was kind of the focus of uh, the cows for the month of August. Uh, and I think this is also the two-year anniversary of Kimberly Randall King black mother in Missouri, uh, Pagedale, Missouri. I don't think they were mentioned as one of the cities in the lawsuit, uh, but she was found hanging to death uh, in a Pagedale jail in 2014. This was this happened after uh, Michael Brown was shot and killed. That didn't get uh, as much attention, but I wrote about that last summer in connection uh, with Sandra Bland. That is certainly relevant to the segment that you heard uh, of the lawsuits in St. Louis. Uh, they're operating what they were called uh, debtor's prisons uh, for all of these low-level, typically nonviolent uh, offenses, typically what they call crimes of poverty where uh, you don't have insurance or you have expired tags on your vehicle or a headlight issue, something of that nature. Uh, and so you get all these fines and warrants and then you end up not paying and you get a bench warrant, that sort of thing. Uh, Kimberly Randall King nonviolent offender, even though she did have an altercation allegedly uh, when enforcement officials were called two years ago that led to her being in greater confinement, but just a lot of low-level nonsense uh, type offenses. And you heard uh, in that sound clip about how uh, draconian the confinement, the jail system is, and it's just not designed uh, for people to be there at all, really. Uh, It's certainly not designed with any sort of humanity uh, and thinking that we want to make sure that these people, uh, you know, they have not been convicted, so we still want to make sure that they are treated humanely uh, and that they can preserve their dignity. That's not what this is about at all. Uh, And it certainly can be enough uh, to completely compromise your mental health uh, and lead you to a lot of destructive, self-destructive behaviors. Khalif Browder comes to mind, even though that was not in Missouri. As I said, Kimberly Randall King, extensive problem. This is planned. This is an element of racism, white supremacy. But just I say all that to say 
the system of white supremacy is about killing black people all the time, whether it's McDonald's, high fructose corn syrup, lead in the water, Darren Wilson on your streets, a variety of ways to kill, harm black people. Uh, and that it, every day would be a memorial to some black person or large numbers of black people uh, who have been killed. Just depends on how far we want to go back. Uh, The anniversary of George Jackson, uh, the soul dad brother, uh, that's coming up later this month too. Just depends on how far we want to go back uh, with the number of black people who died in the month of August over the years. At any rate, uh, one quick thing I also wanted to make sure that I added in. I think the final sound clip that you heard uh, was about the shooting that happened in North Carolina this week, the Raleigh area. Uh, white race soldier Chad Copley uh, going out and shooting and killing uh, unarmed uh, black male um, he has a longer name Corin Rodney Bernard Thomas, uh, this unarmed black male goes out and shoots him kills him uh, because you know they're random Negroes running through my neighborhood and we're just not going to tolerate that sort of thing here in the great state of North Carolina Uh, One thing that was not included in the audio clip that you heard at the beginning, uh, it was in the article at the Washington Post, uh, which is, it's titled, A White Homeowner Called 911 to Report Hoodlums Outside, Then He Fatally Shot a Black Man. Uh, This is uh, authored by Cleve R. Woodson Jr., black journalist, uh, who wrote this report. He's actually uh, written a couple uh, different reports uh, on uh, this particular incident, which happened this week. Uh, but he had one important tidbit. When I first heard about what happened in this case, yes, Trayvon Martin came to mind. I think other listeners, they obviously found out about this case. I don't think this has gotten lots of attention like Trayvon Martin uh, as of yet or some of the other more popular cases. But, I mean, it is being talked about at the Washington Post and other mainstream outlets. Uh, when they mentioned it, the first thing that they talked about was Trayvon Martin uh, and the individual that shot and killed him. Uh, although, and I, I totally understand, that's totally logical, it makes perfect sense, but the immediate incident that it reminded me of was Renisha McBride uh, that happened in Michigan. Uh, that was 2013, uh, in October 2013, if memory is correct, where race soldier Theodore Wafer uh, opened his door and literally blew her brains uh, across his yard, shot and killed her. Um, It reminded me of that for many reasons. Then as I began to read, get more details about this situation, it for sure reminded me of Renisha McBride's situation. I guess Trayvon Martin as well, but Renisha McBride was just the first one that came to mind for me. Reading that Washington uh, Post report, uh, they write here uh, that as they were leaving, uh, Mr. Thomas, the victim, uh, and his non-white friend, as they were leaving, Thomas saw that he thought Excuse me. Thomas saw what he thought were police lights. Walker told, Walker told the newspaper, Thomas, the victim who was shot and killed, who had marijuana on him, according to Walker, took off running. I'm looking at him running the whole time, Walker said. I yelled at him, we good now, stop running. He turned his head back to me, and that's when a shot went off. I will stop there. Um, again, the victim in this case, Corin Rodney Bernard Thomas, he is a victim of white terrorism. I certainly am not blaming him for what happened. This race soldier killing him 
taking his life. I'm not blaming him at all. I am repeating what that fool says on a regular basis, that sobriety would be best under conditions of war. And what that fool has said for years now, that the legalization of cannabis is just not going to end up working out correctly for black people as long as a system of white terrorism exists. Maybe if he didn't have the cannabis on his possession, maybe he wouldn't have ran. Maybe he wouldn't have been shot. Maybe he would have. Again, I'm not blaming the victim, but I certainly have seen enough of these incidents where I don't think cannabis, alcohol, any other intoxicants, I don't think they helped produce a constructive result in this situation and in many, many, many other instances. In fact, there are very few, if any, instances that I've seen where cannabis alcohol made the situation better for a victim of white supremacy. I will stop there. The number again is 641-715-3640 and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you could take about five minutes with your commentary, that would be great. Just make sure everybody gets an opportunity to share their thoughts. We should have ample time for you to share additional thoughts, observations, suggestions. Uh, once everybody has got one turn, and then you can come back in with whatever else you would like to add in. Uh, if you could watch the background noise, that would be great. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment, if there's a television on or if other people are talking, if you could just use your mute button, that would be super appreciated. just helps preserve the quality of the broadcast, and we don't have to deal with a lot of distortion and what have you uh, in the program. Uh, finally, again, this is just for the compensatory call-in on Saturdays. If we could not use metaphors, that would be really appreciate it. Uh, strive for that level of codification. I make errors myself and I do make a point to call myself out uh, if I make an error and am using a metaphor uh, on this program specifically. Uh, so I will challenge myself to do the same uh, with others. But as I've stated consistently, it's my observation, my conclusion that racists, they deliberately, consistently employ metaphors analogies, comparisons that are inaccurate. They're comparing two things that are not the same, that are not equivalent, and that just produces more confusion, misunderstanding about racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works. I think a lot of times just us being victims of racism, we're still confused, still learning about racism, white supremacy, and sometimes have a difficulty articulating our thoughts. Sometimes we use metaphors because they can be convenient, but they are not adding clarity accuracy to the discussion. I've seen this consistently, so I just ask for this program if we can just be direct, simple, explicit about what it is that we want to say, what it is that we're trying to uh, communicate as opposed to making comparisons, analogies, metaphors. Much appreciated. Uh, all of the folks, I guess, oh, and last thing before I get to uh, folks that 
are dialing in. Uh, we're switching. We got an upgrade at Black Talk Radio Network, courtesy of Mr. Reed. So we'll be switching the server over within the next 24 hours. So if there are any interruptions, it should be brief. It shouldn't take a long time to get all that switched over. So uh, just be patient. Feel free to drop an email if you experience any confusion. But it should be taken care of within a short period of time, and uh, we'll be all ready by the time we're back on broadcasting on Monday. Uh, if there are any difficulties that you have in accessing the program or anything that you think would be a suggestion to uh, improve your listening experience or download experience if you just listen to the archives, feel free to share that as well so we can improve as we roll. Folks that dialed in, uh, first set of folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open if you have comments you would like to share. Feel free. Good evening, Tommy Hurt. Yes, sir. Good evening, class. Good evening to all the callers. Tommy Smith in New York. Um, I had some observations to make. Um, first, I wanted to say um, um, rest in peace to Mike Brown. Um, I wasn't even... Um, calculating that this was around the time that happened. Um, in Brazil, um, the Brazil the Brazilian favelas, you know, will make will be the largest and, and worst projects here in the United States, wherever that would wherever that would be. But very suburban and very small. You know, if you look at them, they're huge. They have hundreds of thousands of residents, mostly the darker Brazilians. Um so, um, just my observations on Brazil. I think that you know the Olympics are in Brazil for a reason. Um, I, they just had the World Cup in 2014, which is um, even bigger than the Olympics as far as viewership and um, how it spreads out throughout the whole country. I think um, all the major cities get games, um, and the Olympics is concentrated in one city. Um, and I started thinking why. You know, I can't remember a time where a country got both of those huge sporting events back-to-back, -back, two years apart. Um, I started saying, hmm, um, this country has um, been shifting. Um, Mr. Fuller says um, black, white people, black people don't get comfortable. They, they always have to move. Um, and I think that um, these events have been shifting black people around. And you have to think, um, the, you know, it takes four years. Every four years, there's an Olympics. Every two years, there's a World Cup. So it takes time and preparation for these. Uh, I would say, like, eight years, they've had European white people, you know, um, in American white people in Brazil, um, advising them, um, doing things I'm sure they shouldn't have been doing. And uh, this coincides over that eight-year period of um, Brazil, um, finding oil off their coast. Brazil co-founded the BRICS state with Russia, China, India, and South Africa, which is um, competing against the central banking system. And um, since the sporting events and all these white people in their countries, recently we see the non-white black, um, well, you know, you could call a black female president being ousted under some very suspicious circumstances and replaced by a white man. And then um, you see the outbreak of Zika. And uh, also over that eight-year period uh, where they've been preparing for these events, 
you see at least 5,000 murders a year um, by police, police terrorism, mostly on the dark of Brazilians. So I just think Brazil is something to watch. Um, from my understanding, as for one of the clips, that it was tens of thousands of black people that died in concentration camps um, during World War II. Um, now, as for the Olympics themselves, the Olympics are racist. Um, it's um, most of the sports that they they feature, um, besides the track and field, and it also that also displays racism too. But um, you know, it, it, these are events that black people don't have the opportunity uh, in their neighborhoods or in, in their um, you know um, cities, um, part of the cities they live in to to, to participate in. Um, there's no Olympic sized pools. Um, in, in most black neighborhoods, and there's no swimming coaches, and there's no there's gymnasiums with basketball courts, but none with gymnastic apparatuses. And I think that a lot of the racism I'm seeing geared towards the black athletes in the sports. Um, I saw that I've been hearing a lot about Serena and Venus losing, um, Gabby, and how she's um, getting pledge allegiance and all of this, and um, how she's not happy for the other girls and um, you, they put a lot out there about Simone Biles, um, real mother, and um, you know a, a lot of the, about the swimming. The girl who's doing the swimming a lot talk about her talking about the police brutality. I think that we're seeing um, white people being very afraid that you know black people will come in and dominate the sports that the only sports left that they have to dominate themselves. Also, um, the the uniforms for the U.S. Um, Team is made by Ralph Lauren, um, and I was looking at it like, wow, that's a nice jacket. And um, you know, it has a huge polo logo on it. And I was looking, I, you know, I've seen a polo logo millions of times. I even um, used to wear polo clothes when I was younger. Um, but um, this huge polo logo, and I took a good look at it the other night, and it looks like a slave master or overseer on the plantation on a horse with the whip making a motion like he's about to hit a sling if you really look at it. And I wonder if it's document is like the biggest, you know, male designer as far as um I think volume of clothes themselves. And I wonder if that does something to the white psyche when they see that logo and, you know, puts them back there. And the last thing I wanted to say was um the Baltimore report was over hundred and thirty pages. And if you add that with the over hundred and ninety pages of the Ferguson report um, you have, you know, a whole bunch of pages, and I haven't seen any change. Um, the young lady was just shot in Baltimore a couple of weeks ago. I didn't see any body cam footage, camera footage. And uh, as for the body camera footage, um, the boy shot in um, Chicago. Uh, I viewed the body camera footage. Um, I saw it on the Internet, and I took a good look at it. And you see him um, in a stolen car, a wizard has, and the cops to try to barricade him, and the cop hops out the car, and he doesn't realize the cops did, I don't think, but he tries to swerve to get away from the cop, but this cop just starts shooting at the car as he's driving, which I think scared the guy. He jumped out and starts running, but all the other cops are thinking, he's shooting at the cop, you know, and that just caused a chain reaction of events, and, um, you know, how do you just start shooting at a moving car? That has to be 
against the protocol um, All right. of being a cop. I mean, this, I, I mean, for you. For sure. I did want to point out the uh, United States did host the World Cup in 1994, and then they hosted the Olympics in 1996. So that's pretty recent where a country got both of those big events uh, consecutively. Um, other folks that we have not heard from, if you had uh, comments you wanted to share, feel free. Uh, Hello, good night. Hello, good night. Go ahead. Respect. Thank you. Um, good night, everyone. Um, you you played a clip with uh sound like a white lady uh was saying that um it was childish for people to compensate the uh that black male that uh punched uh the roof uh what's the name of that show again? The Young Turks, Anna Kasparian, that's the female's name. Yes, I found that. And who was that? Was it, was, did they have like a black male on the program? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. He was the last kind of the, towards the end speaker who was saying that uh, if, uh, if we had a just system, then you wouldn't have these type of incidents to begin with. People wouldn't be upset about these things happening. Right. And she did like, think I found that very racist. She said that he was like, he wasn't, he wasn't being an adult, she had said. And I was thinking, I'm like, what are they, what that guy did is, I'm like, that guy, what's his guy that shot Trevor Martin, Zimmerman. He killed Trevor Martin and then he got like, he got money and then he sold, he sold his, uh, he sold the gun that he used to kill Trevor Martin for a quarter million dollars and he didn't go to jail. So that, when she's, I don't, I don't, I don't even see how she can compete. <laughs> I don't know what she's talking about. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. White killers get compensated all the time for killing black people. And um, the reports on the different police uh, departments, you know, I mean, practicing racism, you know, and I don't understand how people can still be talking about good cops and bad cops. And there's only a small number of bad cops when they're doing reports after reports after reports. And the whole system is racist. So to me, the system is doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's killing black people and um, the Olympics. This year, I, like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not participating in the Washington Olympics because the people, especially the black people of Brazil, is like having a really difficult time right now. And um, I don't know in what way I can contribute right now to, to, to not indulge in the pain that they had to go through just for somebody to watch somebody um, kick a ball around or swim in the pool. You know what I mean? The whole cabinet in Brazil right now is corrupted. You know what I mean? And they're doing this, trying to get that non-white lady out of the, uh, the seat. But yeah, that's, that's what I have to around. Thank you. Uh, hello? Yes, sir. Oh, yes. Hi. Uh, just uh, just to go 
back on what the previous caller said. Yes, uh, that clip, as well as every clip by the Young Turks, this proves why I don't, I really have disdain for them. Just the idea that he wasn't being an adult, he wasn't being childish. I mean, he was being childish. Just shows the uh, the racism Casparian practices, as well as Jane Ugar saying, if we're going to start rewarding people for vigilante behavior, as he point, as previous caller pointed out, white killers like Zimmerman getting their rewards, Darren Wilson. White rapist Daniel Hope's Clark and his reward. Hey, there, you know, there are towns that white terrorists got through vigilante justice. You know, there's still survivors of Black Wall Street who know that whites are on their property. And they have not been compensated for it. And that is due to vigilante justice, which wasn't even justice. It was just outright terrorism because it was based on lies. And also the, uh, the idea that federal aid would end for For Flint, Michigan. I mean, it's obvious the problem hasn't been fixed. You still have contaminated water. So why this would end is just another act of racism. And also, you have a lot of President Obama's enemies that love to say Things like, oh, ever since he's been in office, he has been favoring black people. Now, if this was the case, the problem of damaged water in Flint, Michigan would be solved, but it isn't. And it probably won't be solved when he leaves office. You know? And uh, you did did y'all know on August 10th and August 12th, two police officers were killed, one in Arkansas, one in New Mexico. Didn't hear much about it, did you? And we all know why. What what have I been discussing for 20 months? The fact that they're killed by white cop killers means their blue lives didn't matter. And these are like just some really horrible white cop killers. I mean, not just in killing these cops, but the guy in Arkansas 
The cops came to his house because he was pulling a gun on his own dad. And in the case of the New Mexico cop killers, they were, there was a murder warrant out for them, and they're also suspected serial killers. Now, you would think that would just gone a lot of media coverage. You know, serial killers and cop killers in one, but obviously, since it doesn't fit the Warren Cops black man narrative, it's not important. But Blue Lives Matter, right? That's all I have to say. Good evening, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to all the callers. Um, just a couple of observations. Um, uh, the first thing was in reference to what the previous caller had stated in reference to Flint, Michigan. Um, the one thing that um, really stood out to me was when she was speaking of not only the water problem, but also... Uh, the problem with crime and poverty. Um, she mentioned gunshots, and if I'm not mistaken, Flint, Michigan is a probably majority uh, non-white black community, and it goes back to something that <clears throat> I always heard Mr. Fuller talk about is how anything that goes on in the system or in majority uh, black communities is orchestrated by the white supremacists specifically. So the fact that they're removing resources from that area and you also have a huge crime population that's growing there should not be a surprise. Um, the other thing was in reference to what uh, Gus had mentioned in the beginning in reference to marijuana, um, I had also made that observation um, specifically not only with that Raleigh case, but I think I'm not sure if it's been proven to be inaccurate at this point, but there was an alleged picture of Malia Obama smoking weed. Um, I'm not sure if it's, uh, if the picture was accurate or not um, at the so-called Lollapalooza event. Um, but I uh, was discussing it with a couple of different people and I saw a lot of comments online. And actually one thing that I even found effective was talking to my children and I said, anything that you see that has a very harmful or negative effect on black people historically or currently, um, based upon all the evidence, just should not be supported. And um, I agree with Gus, is there's nothing about weed or so-called marijuana that has done anything good for black people since I've seen it on my 38 years um, on this earth. Um, it's incarcerated many of us, and as Dr. Welsing said, you know, it's just us being more critical of the problem. And uh, the one other thing is um, just based upon non-white people's behavior. Uh, what I've just been seeing is um, a lot of confusion, continuously trying to work on my anti-blackness and everything that I see. Um, but I just think that um, based upon these Olympics, looking for the black people, not seeing them, and a lot of black people, non-white people where I live are saying, well, you know, they're just, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, but that just goes into the confusion of this is a country that's been set up to specifically move the non-white people away so you don't see them on camera. 
and um, uh, that's all I have. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, greetings to you, Gus, um, and to all the callers and listeners. This is Ross. Um, I had a couple of observations. Uh, the first one was uh, the clip that you played for about the Olympic pride, American prejudice. Um, it's something I was actually interested in. I didn't realize that it came out already, but I was watching uh, some mini clips of interviews with uh, one of the female filmmakers and I think it's Blair Underwood is the black actor that got involved in the project. And um, I just found the, from the clips, I found it very fascinating that because I never knew that there were another 17 people um, in addition to Jesse Owens that actually was in that Olympics. I never really studied the 1936 Olympics that heavily. So I just probably like most people just assumed that it was Jesse Owens. So I just found it fascinating to find out about these people, and especially the two black women, um, because those circumstances were just insanely racist white supremacists as far as just having to deal with um, the, the Nazis and, and then just dealing with the white Americans they had to fly over there with. I can't imagine just the, the psychological and um, spiritual pressure they must have been under just to be in that environment with all of those predators and still excel to the level that they did on an international stage. So I found that to be very compelling. Now I'm going to actually um, make, the rate, make a way to actually see it now that I know that it's out. So I appreciate that you put that out there. Um, also, I thought about the shooting of the young black male in Raleigh, North Carolina, and um, I didn't know that he um, had marijuana on his person. I did remember hearing that he ran, but I wasn't sure what the reason was that he ran. Now, now it actually makes sense. Um, one thing I was going to say is that uh, last week I remember talking about the fact that I don't really, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't really go out that often unless I have a purpose. I only leave my house if I have a purpose. Um, outside of that, I basically go to work and I'm in my house and I'm doing things that I have to do, or I'm helping my wife and her parents at their house. So um, one thing I realized because they, I remember they when I read that he was at a house party. And they were attempting to get into the house party, but I think they said that there were no girls at the party. One of the guys at the door told them, and um, there was not enough room for them to get in. So that's why they didn't get into the house party. And then the events unfolded shortly thereafter as they were speaking to the young man at the door who said, you know, it's not really a good party. You might as well not go. And I just remember growing up um, in Brooklyn um, in the 80s and the 90s. And house parties were one of the most dangerous places you could go unless you were probably in a situation where you really knew the people or they were your relatives. And even in that situation, I mean, I mean, I even went to house parties that got shot up and whatnot. And it's just not the safest place to be, especially if there's going to be alcohol or drugs on the premises. And usually when you're dealing with young people, you know, they're sneaking stuff around. You know, even with the house parties I went to, people would just, you know, sneak stuff in and do whatever they had to do and find ways of, partaking of whatever they were partaking of. So I just think that just the whole idea, once you understand the system, um, just really for safety reasons, making conscious decisions. And like us always says, thinking ahead, you know, thinking 10, 12, 15 steps ahead as far as the decisions you're making before you actually put yourself in an environment where you could potentially lose, lose your life on that level. And I remember when we were discussing this situation in email, Thomas said he thought, thought about the um, DC snipers because of the way the incident happened. This white male actually shot him from in, within his garage. So no one knew where the bullet came from. They just saw him basically get shot and they were wondering where it came from. And we 
heard the 911 call. So I just wanted to put that out there again, just thinking ahead before you go out in public spaces, because you never know what you're going to run into in regards to situations like that and sick white people um, that you're not expecting to, you know, take shots at you. Um, also, I wanted to touch on the Flint, Michigan situation as well. Um, I just think this is like just a fascinating treatise on how white supremacy functions on a holistic level as far as all of them working together in tandem to make sure that they ruin black life. And I remember uh, Dr. Will Hawkins, he talks on Tandem Radio quite a bit, and he's a brilliant, brilliant uh, black scientist um, who actually makes water filters. Um, and they're basically the same degrade that NASA uses. And he talked about it on Tandem that the um, government in Michigan had reached out to him to help them um, I guess, give out filtration systems to the residents in Flint, Michigan. And he said just the contact that he had with them and all of the stuff that was happening in the news, he did not want to deal with any city officials whatsoever. So he declined um, dealing with them. And as things unfolded, he said he knew he made the right decision. But what he has been doing is dealing with the people directly. And it's like different groups, I guess, through churches and things like that, that he's able to to facilitate getting directly to black people because he's black himself. And um, he just really strives to help black people maintain their health via optimally clean water. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there, too, just the fact that they're just so it's just so crazy how they work in tandem to destroy us. And then they find ways of breaking their own laws and getting around their laws in order to facilitate maintaining white supremacy. And um, there's just a lot of work to be done for us to um, really get this system eradicated because it's just quite nauseating to hear these stories on a regular basis of all of these things happening to our people. It's just really sometimes depressing. Um, thank you very much, and I'll meet my line. Uh, other folks that uh, we have not heard from, uh, any folks out there that we have not heard from at all? Can I do it? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Ken Steele from Chicago, and I'm calling uh, this week. I think the first thing that I want to address uh, is the um, uh, anniversary of the uh, uh, killing of Mike Brown. Very tragic. Uh, rest in power, Mike Brown. Um, I went to Ferguson following uh, that situation and uh, saw the protests, the original hands up, don't shoot pr- protests. And um, all of those ma- actions were tremendously moving uh, to me. And um, it was uh it was terrifying to say the least. So that was my uh, kind of introduction into what is going on on a ground level. And after that situation, I made the note to um, never participate in any sort of protests or demonstrations following that. Um, It was just uh, terrifying. They brought out a tremendous show of force. They flew drones overhead. They had F-16 fighters, um, fly overhead and um, they had a tremendous uh, presence, police presence with complete with armored vehicles, LRAD devices. It was, uh, it was uh, very, very, very intense. Um, so uh, again, rest in power, Mike Brown. Um, the first uh, issue that I wanted to cover was a report that I saw online um, uh, from 60 Minutes about drug courts. 
And I did some research following this, and I found that uh, there are a number of drug courts that have sprung up across the country. And it seems that the explicit purpose of these courts uh, is to try people who have nonviolent drug offenses. However, in the uh, application of these courts, uh, every report that I've seen has indicated that um, there is uh, overrepresentation of white people that are um, that these courts are being applied for, and these courts allow people who have committed crimes, um, nonviolent drug offenses, to uh, have their records cleared and to have uh, the charges dropped. And um, I read reports from Wisconsin, Massachusetts, Alabama, and Ohio, and every single one of these reports used the phrase overwhelmingly white uh, when describing the uh, offenders that were participating in these uh, drug courts. So that's something that um, I definitely want to uh, note to listeners, especially when uh, considering these uh, so-called FBI stats that are often used to justify mistreating um, non-white people. Um, White-on-white crime is being covered up, uh, and it's being mischaracterized as some sort of uh, health, public health problem or some sort of drug problem. No, this is simply criminal activity, and they are covering up for it, and it's only being done, um, or it seems to be primarily being done for white offenders. Um, I wanna also piggyback on a previous caller who mentioned uh, that, uh, I believe uh, three cops were slain this week. Um, Two of the, uh, cop killers, um, they were serial killers or alleged serial killers. They were wanted for killings in Colorado, I believe. And um, the victim of the killing in New Mexico uh, was a non-white uh, law enforcement official. So that is something to be noted. And then also um, worth noting with respect to um, law enforcement, uh, Travis County uh deputy in uh, Texas, uh, certain Sergeant Craig Hutchison committed suicide earlier this week. And he reported to dispatchers before killing himself that there were prowlers in his yard. And, uh, and then he staged his own suicide. So People are, um, there was some investigation and it was found that he had been suffering from depression and that his home was being foreclosed on. And many people are saying that this is reminiscent of uh, the suicide of Joe Glenowitz, uh, which took place here in Illinois and not too far uh, from Chicago in a place called Fox Lake. And he was found to be stealing uh, out of the children's fund and he was under investigation for this. Um, and despite this, they went forward and 
staged a whole uh, lot of resources uh, devoted to finding this guy. Um, his wife was eventually indicted on conspiracy charges following uh, the revelation that he had killed himself. So a lot of people are saying that um, this is very reminiscent of that, and they are indicating that uh, this case should be watched um, for any developments that uh, this uh, law enforcement officer was, in fact, uh, what they call a dirty cop. Um, and I guess that is uh, it for now. I will uh, go ahead and mute my line. Thank you. Larry we heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, good evening to you, Gus, the host, and um, to the callers and the listeners. I don't have much to say tonight, but I just want to, um, the first thing I want to say, if, if I heard the clip correctly before you came on the show, and Lily Floyd, I think he said something about, we have to learn how to think, told my black people. And I just, you know, just feel like I just need to say that, because when you talk about, <laughs> when you talk about, the young man that got killed—that uh, was killed. I would say got, got killed. Coming from the party and the, you know, the so-called neighborhood watch in his garage, you know, with all that foolishness and, you know, almost reminiscent of, of Trayvon Martin. And the things you you said, like you said, the food. I'm not calling the person. But I'm, you know, saying what you said that the food to say it about, you know, uh, sobriety is the best thing, and you know how marijuana isn't really for us or is it good, you know, for us. And so I just think, like you say, even with young people, because I do think um, part of the problem is, particularly with young blacks today, for some reason when I'm looking at this generation, I'm I'm like saying that, wow, this is probably the most integrated generation of black people in this country. (sighs) I mean, you know, you had slavery and, you know, Jim Crow and all that. But it's something about this. And so I'm, when I say this, this is in the word, it's in quotes, so don't write bite my head off, in freedom, if you will. You know, these are the people who I think one time there's a girl on, um, was Brittany Cooper, and I remember one time she was on Melissa Harris Perry show, and I can remember reading an article and she was saying something like, oh, I have white friends, and I got a good white friend, and I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm known as the uh sister from another mother, and I stayed all night with my white friend. And so this is a group that, to me, it just appears that this generation is probably the most integrated in that they're moving, quote-unquote, freely with their, quote-unquote, white friends. And so they're doing the things. I saw the picture. I saw a picture. I saw the picture of Malia Obama with all the white girls around her. And, yeah, it does. It's not a cigarette. She holds something up to her lips, and it does look like it was a joint. Now, you know, she she's 18. I mean, you know what I'm saying. But I'm defining that, you know, all these white friends. And so what's happening is they are moving in these circles and they are believing I can do the same, same thing that they're doing. And so they're not thinking. And, I mean, I don't know if, if some of that may fall on, you know, us as older, you know, their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, you know, are still alive. Uh, which could be in my generation, um, you know, to tell them the truth of who these people are that they are hanging with and trying to do the things like them because the outcomes are not going to be the same. So, you know, I just wanted to say that. And I just wanted to say, even like you said, it's the fools, I'm not going to call you that, 
but continue to keep saying that. And hopefully as, as we will share that with our family, with our friends, you know, sobriety, you know, is, you know, is best. You know, this marijuana, uh, um, you know, that's out here. Now, this isn't a good thing for you to be doing. And, you know, to talk about things, I do think a big part of the problem, too, with us, of course, as people is we don't know our history. We, and so there's things going on. I'm old enough, uh, I mean, I just turned 60. So I'm old enough to know some things, and I have a master's in history, so I have studied history. So I am seeing some things and behaviors that uh, things are, if they never left, but if you will, they're coming back. And then we're in this presidential cam- uh, campaign. We have, um, I, I personally, myself, I feel Trump and Hillary are two peas in the same pod. I just think Trump is just bold enough to say the stuff that Hillary won't say. But yet that stuff goes out into society or goes out into the environment, and it does affect the environment. Um, and, um, you know, I, I just, whew. And, and I just say this about the Olympics, they're doing what they're doing. I mean, I am, you know, happy for, or, you know, happy for Simone Biles and Simone Manuel and the, uh, the uh, young sister that did the shot put and wanted to go, you know, I'm really happy for them. But I also know, too, there will be, you know, everybody's excited now, but you know how they are. There will be backlash once, you know, this stuff settles down when it's over with. And, you know, because we know how white people are, that stuff really, you know, when they think, when they think about it, it sets them off. Oh, look at what these niggas doing. Because they know who they are and, you know, they know who we are and the person we don't. So anyway, I just want to say to the person that keeps saying sobriety is the best choice and to be careful about marijuana, keep saying it. Because like I said, hopefully the callers and listeners, we will say to our family, you know, sobriety is the best choice. In my case, stop all that drinking, leave the alcohol alone. I, I see how it plays off in some members of my family, and it's not a pretty picture. So I just wanted to say that and uh, say again, thank you for the show, and I will mute my line. Uh, anyone that we have not heard from, uh, please do not wait till the last minute. If you know you have comments you would like to share, this is not a spectator broadcast either. But if you have comments you would like to share, observations uh, from the week, uh, whether it was in the audio clips that we heard at the beginning or not, uh, if you can get your hand up uh, and or if you already uh, have your hand up, mine should be unmuted. If we have not heard from you, speak now. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I guess. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, that segment where it was talking about how there's a enhanced or increased uh, law enforcement presence in school districts, I think, or in schools where there are a lot of uh, black students or non-white students, I thought about when I was in high school, there was a, like, like down the street where I lived in the, uh, the complex next to the high school, and there was a sheriff's department, like, right down the street, and it used to be a supermarket, so I guess that may be some kind of gentrification type thing, but, you know, I do remember a lot of, uh, um, uh, 
deputies being there and the contempt they had for the, uh, you know, uh, black students for a lot of us there. Like, you know, they would just pretty much mace a whole crowd of, you know, young 17, 18 year olds. And, uh, yeah, I was thinking about that for that part. And I seen a new segment here locally where they were talking about, I guess it was a commission meeting and they were talking about race with uh, marijuana and uh, cannabis and how black people are being targeted by uh, the police and pulled over. And I guess it was a, a white guy that was trying to, I guess, put forth some kind of a petition to get it legalized here in this county or in the state of Florida. But, you know, someone else is also bringing up the, the racial issues, a lot of black people in the uh, meeting. And I guess that person and some of the other white people from the news report said, well, you know, maybe we can just, maybe we can just uh, research it to see if it actually plays out that way because white people are just getting citations and warnings and black people are getting arrested and just mistreated all the way around. So, uh, you know, that I, I thought about that since the uh, victim, I guess it was reported the guy had, uh, I guess, some weed on him. And I think it was, it was another segment where, uh, well, actually it was another article I read where it was, it was this black male in Detroit of Michigan. Like, I guess it would be for the workplace racism, but he uh, has a whole bunch of recordings on his phone where he's talking to some suspected racist and they're being like blatantly uh, racist towards him. You know, he's, it's one where he's saying, well, you know, everybody's different or something like that. And, he, and then the white guy, it says co-worker on the screen. He doesn't say the name. And the guy says, well, you know, not all of us. And he says, everybody except for the Browns. And he was like, what do you mean by that? He said, you, you, you blacks are, are this and that. Now you can hear, this is his coworker. And it was another one on another recording. The video was like three minutes long. And by the end of the uh, segment, he, the, the black reporter, he said that the young guy, he's like 21 years old. His name is, I think, Ernest Garner. He and his, uh, I think, attorneys, civil rights attorneys, they have over 166 recordings that they have to uh, sit and examine and go through. So I thought that was very interesting. So um, I think he's supposed to be uh, suing his uh, em former employer. It was a car repair shop. I forgot what was the name of the place, but yeah, I thought that was very interesting. And that's all I have for now. Thanks. Fascinating. Wow. <laughs> so, that is a lot of documentation. Uh, I'm, I'm not surprised. Oh, I think I have it. If you all are, you all are interested in checking it out. Um, Yep, it, uh, the report I found, uh, young man files lawsuit claiming racist behavior at Novi Collision Shop. Uh, if you're interested in checking it out, and they've got the, uh, <laughs> they, I guess they have an exchange that they transcribed. 
Um, it says, I guess this is the white guy talking to Mr. Garner. He says, uh, you probably expletive take guys all around milking the expletive clock. That's what most blacks do. <laughs> Garner responds, what? The racist comes back and says, most blacks do. And Mr. Garner comes back, most blacks do what? And then the racist responds, milk the expletive clock. <laughs> and it just goes on from there. So to have that many recordings of all that, that is a lot of documentation. I hope that's the sort of thing that people are doing. Workplace racism, great illustration right there. Just document, 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 document. And then down the road after you have your 106 recordings or, you know, a whole notebook of documentation, then that puts you in a much better position uh, to proceed, uh, whatever, however you want to handle the situation. But I'll post this on the Facebook page if folks are uh, interested in checking it out. Other folks that uh, we have not heard from, uh, if we have anybody uh, that we have not heard from at all, you should certainly speak up uh, right now if we have not heard from you at all. Uh, and then if other folks have additional comments that they would like to share, feel free as well. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Peace to the callers, to the hosts, and to the platform. I just have a few observations tonight. Uh, during the existence of racism, white supremacy, which is a f sophisticated form of terrorism, in my opinion. Uh, you know, the clips that you played about Dylan Roof and, uh, you know, the fact that the person uh, got violent with Dylan Roof and some people didn't like that and he bonded out. And, uh, you know, the whole fact that Dylan Roof went and shot up a great church and he wasn't called a terrorist and he wasn't, uh, you know, depicted as a terrorist. And I think that a caller earlier said that, you know, certain things that go on during the existence of racism and white supremacy, they tend to, you know, let white criminals get away with things and then when it's a non-white person they want to uh give you the maximum penalty and then uh, also i wanted to talk about uh like the ku klux klan uh not just dealing roof not being outright labeled a terrorist but the fact that groups like the ku klux klan are still under the radar of terrorism, so to say, and uh, the things that white people are able to do under the guise of the order of the Ku Klux Klan and the orders of Freemasonry that they have, uh, Arabic noble mystic shrines and stuff like that. And I just, you know, see that as being a total part of the system you know, for the people that think that they make it, like the celebrities or the intellectuals, you know, they white supremacists are burning midnight oil, like Neely Fully Jr. said, I think. And um, let's see here. That's about it. Probably got more to say, but I don't want to take up too much time. I 
if there are other folks. Uh, certainly, if you have not shared, if you think you might want to get your hand up uh, to speak before we get to the end of the broadcast, certainly get your hand up. Do not wait till the end. Uh, if you have commentary, uh, folks that have already spoken, if you have additional comments you want to make sure you get in, uh, you should certainly be with us as well. Feel free to speak your mind. We could watch the metaphors as well. Watch the metaphors. Thank you kindly. Um, I wanted to chime in on the Young Turks clip, too. I found it uh, very tricky of them to state uh, that the whole idea of the black male beating up Dylan Roof would be, and, and getting uh, lauded for that, would, would bolster vigilantism and it would cause anarchy because what we're living in and have been living in for the last minimum 500 years has been anarchy and vigilantism. George, George Zimmerman is a vigilante, and there's a whole slew of them um, as far as just these white people who are just killing black people you know, with no, with no uh, legal repercussions whatsoever beyond the police killing. Um, so I just think the whole, their whole approach is just a white supremacist approach. I hate that show. Um, the tone of their voices is nauseating. Um, and I like that you play the clips though, because I think that the different ways they express their racism give great insight into how white people function, um, their psychopathology. Um, so I think that that, that's actually great, but I just, they just are annoying the way that they use their rhetorical ethics and they, they state things in a manner that, that can be very confusing for people, um, especially those who don't understand the system of white supremacy um, that well. Those sorts of statements and the way they present them can be very, very confusing for people like that because, you know, we live with a bunch of vigilantes. You just never know when some white terrorist is going to do something to you, you know, whether it's coming to going to work or coming home from work or in the store or anywhere else that you happen to go in the system. Um, so I just think that that was just a, a real, um, real slick way that they actually talk about things and they tend to do that quite often. And also, Gus, I wanted to ask if you got my email about the book, Minister Gaddy. Yes, sir. I did get it. Much obliged. Okay. For, uh, no, no problem. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. I wasn't sure. So I know you probably get your email probably gets bombarded quite often. So I just didn't know if you might have, um, you know, not been able to see it. So I just wanted to make sure that at least you got it. So as soon as I get the um, tracking number, then I'll be able to send that to you for that. And the, um, the other one that I found very interesting, the violence in the human brain, mm -hmm. I found that a very, very interesting title. So I got it for myself as well. Um, so, <laughs> right yeah. <on>. <laughs> Your your book list is sick, man. I can't wait till you uh till you release it because um I just found out. I was like, wow, this is very interesting. And then as soon as I clicked on it, I said, oh yeah, I said yeah, I'm getting him one. I'm getting me one too. I need to read that as well as well as um Minister Gaddy's book. So thank you, and I'll meet my line for now. For sure, that violence in the mind is uh, courtesy Harriet Washington Medical Apartheid. Uh, at recommended uh, for folks who were with us for the book study or if you you know read the book on your own to make sure that you invest the time to look through the references and footnotes because she has lots and lots of exquisite research material that was one violence in the mind there were quite a few others uh, that helped her uh, construct that book but yeah reading is more important than watching television um, I did want to get in uh, certain you know, have time for other folks if you have commentary you'd like to share, or whatever the case may be. Just the, the South Carolina thing, with it being the one-year anniversary of Dylan 
uh, Ruth's terrorist attack on the uh, Mother Emanuel AME Church. Um, that's like one of my favorite President Obama lines from the eulogy. It's certainly not a humorous affair, him doing the eulogy at Reverend uh, State Senator Reverend Clementa Pinckney uh, at his memorial service uh, after he was murdered. Um, but that is, I mean, the line where he says, uh, you know, he, Dylan Roof did all this and maybe he didn't know about the history of the church, but sure he had some sense and he was doing this to, to, to provoke more conflict. And this goes back to our country's original sin. And he gives the church twang and, and oh, how God works in mysterious ways. And the crowd goes, wow, like that is, uh, that is one of my memorable moments of the Obama presidency for a myriad of reasons. But with it being the one year anniversary with all of that happening, that TV program that I mentioned, a listener pointed it out, uh, Vice Principals, it was completely lost on me. At first, I didn't start watching the first episode. I, I told the person I'm not trying to pick up new TV shows, so I said I'll just watch the one episode where they these whites burn down this black female's house, this black mother's house, because they're upset that she got a job that they wanted. Um, but this is set in South Carolina. That was kind of lost on me when I was thinking about this program and watching it. I had mentioned it before about workplace racism because that's what the whole thing, the whole show is about, workplace racism uh, and explicit white supremacy violence against this black female and her whole family because she has children, so they lose their house too. But that episode specifically, they burn down her house. That episode ends with this black female praising the very white males that burned down her house as what great workers there are they are and she's so fortunate and blessed to have them at her side helping her adjust to this new job as a principal of this high school and she's just so grateful to have them and she prays she holds their hand and prays with them they are mocking her while she's praying and they have burned her house down. <laughs> I think she's doing all this praying the day after they have burned her house down. And this debuted in July. It debuted literally almost one year to the anniversary of Dylan Roof's attack on the Mother, a uh, a Mother Emanuel AME Church in South Carolina. And I think it might even be in Charleston, not just in South Carolina. I think this show might even be set in Charleston. That's the sort of thing... I had to think about it more, just the relevance of that. That is, it's astro, just for that episode alone, it is astronomical. And that's the type of thing that I point out when I say that whites are not ignorant about white supremacy. There's no way that you can tell me that a group of very sophisticated whites with a lot of money, this is on HBO, could sit down and put a product out like this with the timing of when it is released, it being set in South Carolina with the theme of the show and the things that happen in this show, deliberately talking about race, and they make their complaints against this black female explicitly racial uh, to do that and have this sort of thing happen and say, oh, what do you mean? What does this have to do with Dylan Roof and nine niggers being killed? What this is just, you know, television. It's just sitcom. What are you talking about? This, we, nobody, who is Dylan? I don't even remember Dylan Roof. That's old new. No, no, no. These are communicating white supremacy concepts and messages to other whites and again racist jokes i say this consistently abusing terrorizing black people is supposed to be fun burning down a black mother's house is supposed to be fun dylan roof is supposed to have fun and get a reward for going and shooting up a black church which has happened many many times before just 
the whole Dylan Roof thing made me uh, made sure that I emphasized that point about the setting of this television. Not that you need to watch the whole thing. In fact, you can just watch the second episode where they burn down her house and that will see what you have seen. Everything you need to see if you just see that one episode and it's only 30 minutes if you have 30 minutes to spare. I will hush there. Other folks uh, have commentary they wanted to get in. You know, guys, just to chime in on what you just said about uh, the timing of everything, um, that's something that I really start to pay attention to, have started to pay attention to in the last few years because I just find that to be very telling. And they do this sort of stuff to be, like, coded in their complete and utter contempt for black life, as you you so eloquently put it. And I remember um, Ms. Antoinette Hamill had talked about – I believe she talked about black people celebrating the new year, the January 1st, and um, talked about what that meant for our ancestors. And um, I thought about it when, and when I studied it, I said that should actually be a time of mourning for black people. Because if you study the history of Europe, when the Moors were there, they actually kicked the Moors out. The final Moors left January 2nd of 1492. And we all know that later that year, <laughs> what happened, so literally the origins of our suffering in this past 500-year period literally started right after the new year when they kicked the last Moors um, out of Europe, out of uh, Spain and Portugal. They essentially um, facilitated their wanting to go on this global white supremacist um, experiment that we're now living in this modern day and time. So uh, thank you for bringing up that whole um, that whole discussion about that because it made me think about timing and, and when uh, Mrs. Antoinette Hamill brought that up on the show a few days ago. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I just wanted to make an, uh, an additional comment uh, based upon like what was said earlier and what the last caller just said, you know, and I definitely noticed that you know, a lot of this stuff is directly connected to the last, like he said, 500 years or so, especially, uh, you know, white supremacy or throw out the number 1488, or excuse me, racism, white supremacy or throw out the number 1488. But then it's also significant to know about the year 1492 because it's like most of the stuff that started happening after that, you can kind of see what happened versus going back, you know, 2500 BCE, you know, I can't see that far. And then the Dylan Roof thing, the, like I said, you know, they don't treat him like he's a terrorist, but if a, a black person who so happened to be a Muslim or something was to go and, uh, you know, do some things to uh, white Christians at their church, then I, I just know for a fact that, they would say that this person is a terrorist and et cetera, et cetera, or they were inspired by et cetera. And, you know, but when it was white supremacy being the theology that was the uh, basis of the religious thought that Dylan Roof had, uh, it's it's played, it's swept, not swept under the rug. It's just, people don't take it as seriously as they should because of the system of racism and white supremacy and the use of Christianity and Catholicism that they, 
you like you know you mentioned in the show that they was mocking the the black woman when she was praying as a Christian, and you know historically the Islam and Christianity war I think has something to do with black people and still today has something to do with black people and then the ritualistic releasing of the show dealing with a Freemasonry aspect or how they like to do magic and stuff like that. So all of this stuff we're talking about is definitely relevant, and uh, that's all I wanted to add. The folks that were talking about, I guess, the scrutiny, the racist scrutiny that some of the black Olympians were being subjected to this week. I know uh, I saw some of the stuff about Gabrielle Douglas that she didn't uh, salute or whatever the case. And then the playing up, uh, I think, Simone Biles, the uh, gold medalist uh, for the gymnastics team. Uh, I think she was another one of those that was adopted, abducted by a white family and kind of playing up their integral role that she wouldn't have been able to do this uh, without these uh, white invaders coming in and uh, pushing her career along and some of the other things. Uh, What would the response be? Well, hey, if someone challenged you on any of that to say that that's not racism, that any of the Olympic athletes are held to scrutiny, you know, we don't want anyone to go over and act a fool and embarrass uh, the country by not, you know, uh, conducting themselves uh, with the utmost level of class and sportsmanship like you know if they said well hey uh hope solo she's not black she's white and she got fussed at this week uh as well for being a poor sport when they lost and calling the opponents uh cowards that they fussed at her too so it wasn't just black people like gabrielle douglas and simone piles and some of the other folks who got scrutinized uh i don't i didn't hear some uh simone manual being fussed at directly i know some people did say that they she didn't get her moment uh, where they televised her getting her medal and everything for uh, winning the gold in swimming. But I know some people did say that uh, they felt she was criticized for bringing up racism and police brutality after she won her uh, her gold medal. But what would your response be to folks who say, you know, hey, there were white people who were subjected to the same sort of scrutiny for their conduct in Rio this week? I would say it's Wait. two different things. Oh, you can go ahead. I'll, I'll wait. No, I, 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 my question is, I mean, let, ooh, I'm sorry, I got my radio on. Unless I missed something, when? When were these white people scrutinized for anything? They say it seemed that they're not talking about anything but the Olympics. And Michael Phelps talking about his son, Boomer. And, you know, so I'm just like, somebody would say that to me. I'm just like, when? You know, I, I, I mean, I just didn't see it. Maybe I missed it. You know, and I just wanted to say, that, um, I, you know, I mean, she put her stuff on the line, uh, Miss Manuel, Simone Manuel, by saying what she said, because we know, you know, how they can be. And remember, I said, after all this settles down, when it's all over with, you know, the backlash is going to come. But um, I took my hat to her, for, like I said, for those who say, oh, you know, what? I'm just like, when? Because I don't hear them talking anything about anything but the Olympics and what they went through to get to the Olympics. And I'll meet myself with that statement. 
I was going to say there's two different things. One person, the white person is being scrutinized for calling the other team cowards. She's being scrutinized for telling the truth about what's happening in this country. And um, I just find that to be very telling because that's the way racism functions. You can't represent a racist country, the most racist country on the planet, and go to an international event and expect that when a, a, a news company that belongs to that racist corporation they call America um, has uh, news people out there that they're going to grant you a platform to tell the truth on an international stage about the same people who you're playing on, on the behalf of. So it's, you know, I just think that that's really interesting. And also her last name being Manuel, I'm thinking maybe there must be some white Latino or so-called Hispanic that, um, that is one of her parents or maybe her father or whatever the case may be. And I remember I always wondered what the term Hispanic meant because I was just like, well, what is that? And recently I was watching a, a nature documentary on National Geographic and they actually were doing uh, a documentary on the wildlife in uh, France and Spain came up in the conversation and they actually said the term Hispania means land of the rabbits because uh, Spain was known to have an extremely high population of rabbits in its countryside and prairies. And that's where the name Hispanic comes from. So I'm like, when you call someone Hispanic, you're basically saying they're from the land of the rabbits. And I was like, wow, I find that very interesting um, that basically they're naming themselves after the land of the rabbits. Um, and I'll meet my line there. Thank you. I would just like to say that, um, you know, as far as the question, uh, when she said something about racism and white supremacy, I think that the, you know, the devils and the Luciferians, you know, they always want to cause confusion about truth or real belief or knowledge. So, of course, they would throw some type of rhetoric in the game to kind of counter what she was saying. But then also when it was the white person, Ledecky, who when she was commenting about maybe I think it was a Russian who was allegedly using like performing enhancing drugs, uh, you know, it was like the media and the people that was interviewing her was basically leading her into talking about, you know, that she was against the performance enhancing drugs or whatever and cheating and you know, like, and they was like, you know, she's standing up for not being on drugs and all that. But then it really looked like she was on drugs by the time it was done. And in my observation, and so I think that that was significant if they said anything to Miss Manuel for bringing up racism and white supremacy, and they treated Ledecky uh, special when she was talking about uh performing enhanced drugs. Also, Ledecky was under security, too. They said that her, I think her life was threatened after she put that information out there, so they actually have a security detail following her now, just to put that in a little addendum to what the brother was talking about. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add that um, Simone Manuel, she won the silver medal tonight. Um, she came in second. Um, I think Roz was on point with the differential. 
between you know pretty much you know was telling the truth it wasn't lying. Um, I wanted to say something to the caller who um, has made an effort and he's been running consistently on um, talking about the white people who shoot police officers and get away with it, and they don't make a big deal out of it in the media. And uh, I think one of the things that they do proficiently is they'll um, add up all those police murders at the end of the year, and um, you'll when they give that number. They'll put it in a way that you would think all those people were killed by black people. Um, they're not going to be accurate in how they, they um, discuss that. And um, I think that they've done that continuously the last few years. Uh, every time that, that they mention, um, you know, the amount of black people that was killed by the police, let's say I think last year 24 police were killed in a line of duty, and they might just show the picture of, the one or two black people that shot the police, and they're not going to show the other 10 white people that did it. And I think that gives the impression to the white masses that, um, you know, this is a, these black people are the ones killing the police, not the white people. So I think this year we're going to have a total, it's got to be a higher number than we've had the last few years, just off of the incidents in Louisiana and, um, and then um, Texas. And I think at the end of the year, the, the even with um, the two incidents where all those cops got killed, it's not even going to top what, how many white people killed the cops. But those are going to be the two faces they associate with all these murders when they add them all up, which will probably be 36 or 40 cops by the end of the year. I mean, my mom. Just... For your information, uh, since the cannabis aspect was brought up with the shooting that happened in Raleigh, uh, I w- was going to include the segment, the DEA uh, Drug Enforcement Agency. They did make a decision this week that they were not going to uh, modify the classification of cannabis, uh, have been having it, I think it's a Schedule One uh, controlled substance, looked at in the same way as uh, heroin and some of the other Uh, I would submit more dangerous uh, toxins, substances, that they're not going to change that classification. Uh, For the folks who say, well, see there, this is not going to be anything that becomes uh, legalized federally, uh, certainly not anytime soon. Uh, Soon is relative. Uh, It might not happen this year. I would still encourage folks to pay attention uh, to some of the elections that happen later in the year, uh, because I think it will probably be legalized in more states by the time we get to 2017, but I think I've been saying all along, whether it takes five years, 10 years, uh, it is coming, uh, where I think this is going to be something that happens eventually where it does get legalized nationally, uh, in this part of the world and elsewhere. And I don't think it is going to be to the benefit of black people, victims of white supremacy. Uh, oh, I personally think that they're not going to legalize it on a federal level because if they do legalize it on a level and how would they enforce the drugs that come in from outside of the United States you know that's if the federal government is going to be in place all the states will legalize it and um, the federal government will be the buffer in place to keep the Mexican product and the Canadian product and other products that come across the borders from being the top choice you know that they can still enforce the drug laws on people bringing it in and I don't see them changing that. Um, that just wouldn't be good from a financial standpoint. And white people always think about their finances. 
I did read an article that talked about them um, looking into potentially legalizing it for medical reasons. So it might actually be legalized federally strictly for medical purposes. And then I do believe, like you said, um, if they do do something like that, it would be individual states. And like you were saying, I think um, we might see a lot more uh, individual states uh, looking to legalize it too because I did see on my local news channel that the senator of New Jersey was actually looking into potentially legalizing um, recreational marijuana use in the state of New Jersey. So um, that is something that I totally um, agree with you on as far as what you were saying. Another thing I wanted to bring up too was just um, recently I was talking to another um, brother that I talked to from Tando quite regularly, and he had brought up the term, uh, and I, I just thought about us studying the origins of words um, simply because he brought up the term blessing or to bless someone. And a lot of times we're under the impression that that term actually means something positive as far as bestowing some sort of um, some sort of positive energy from the from a beneficent uh, supreme being that we might call God or whatever name you might call it. And the term actually means blood sacrifice. When you study it, if you look it up on the online etymology um, dictionary, you look up the term blessed. When you tell someone that you're blessing them, you're basically wishing them to become a blood sacrifice. So it's just something I wanted to put out there because white people, you know, doctor words. And no matter how many different ways they change the meaning, it never changes the original meaning of the word. And that just ties into the word nigger and the fact that I don't care how many different ways you spell it and how many different ways you say it the word means what it was originally intended to mean, not what you devise it to mean, you know, in modern times per se. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I noted that uh, marijuana and the uh, legal aspect of marijuana has been a uh, topic of discussion throughout the uh, evening. And I wanted to note that, uh, very recently in the state of Michigan, uh, the uh, law enforcement officials have been authorized to give roadside saliva drug tests uh, to motorists that they suspect are uh, consuming marijuana. This is a uh, new, a relatively new technology that has been developed in response to uh, the push to uh, decriminalize and to legalize uh, with the new uh, recreational states and um, with the medical states, with all of the marijuana proliferating throughout, um, uh, I guess, the consumption patterns of Americans, uh, they have, uh, there has just been a huge push to catch uh, motorists uh, who have consumed marijuana. Right now, there's no legal way for them to determine uh, this. However, if you look on most of the legalization or the decriminalization or the um, medical bills, they will have a limit of, I believe it is uh, five micrograms, uh, that if, if they detect that in your system, at the time of an accident or an infraction, then you could be uh, liable to catch a DUI. The fact is that if you are a regular consumer of cannabis, that threshold is going to be easily obtained um, and maintained through your system um, throughout, uh, I, I believe it's a one-week period. So I don't know how accurate these tests are, 
but they are rolling them out. And it, and uh, as many people have noted in the past, that this decriminalization and this legalization is just opening up more ways to harm black people using the law. Um, so um, just be advised if you are consuming, um, this is something that uh, they are on the lookout for now. And more and more states are going to be um, increasingly employing some of these uh, new technologies. I find this to be very interesting what, what the brother just discussed there, because um, the whole idea, like he was saying, like if you're a regular consumer of cannabis, you're going to have that flowing through your bloodstream for at least, you know, a minimum of a month. And if you're a person who doesn't exercise heavily or whatever the case may be, it's going to be way longer than that. You're going to have it in your system. So the whole idea is that the test would have to devise when you last partook of it simply because, you know, you might not have had it, had it, let's say you haven't had any in a week, but yet because you're a regular smoker, you're going to have a, a higher amounts of it in your bloodstream so that it'll look like if you, you actually were partaking of it, even if you weren't. So there's really going to be ways of them just picking people up and putting them in jail for like craziness just due to the way this test works. So, um, yeah, really, really think about it and be careful as far as, um, you know, what, what you do and how you do it, because it, it seems like it's going to be a major, major issue um, as they refine how they define what the criminal amount of marijuana is in a person's system at a given time they stop you on the road. So it's really something to think about. They also have emotional-based um, technology, which can tell if you're telling the truth. Um, it, it's like a camera's looking at your face. Um, they can stop you, say, son, did you smoke weed today? Um, you can say no. And this camera, based off of all the patterns and things that someone that's telling the truth or lying, it will give them um, enough probable cause to go further and search and probably test you with the kit that the gentleman was talking about earlier with, with whatever however many micrograms. So, I mean, the technology they have coming out that the police will have all as a response to Black Lives Matter and um, this rapid police um, shooting black people is going to really be um, to our detriment. Might be a good idea uh, if I know we have parents who listen to the program to share uh, the case that happened in Raleigh, North Carolina with your children. I uh, know autumn is coming up, school will be starting up. If you have any children if they're going away for college uh just that is a pretty common thing uh for young folks uh it's the weekend let's go it's summertime so it doesn't even have to be the weekend uh anytime is good time to let's go out and have some fun go to a party whatever the case may be um it's been my experience that i think for a lot of younger people racism is not as salient um, for a lot of younger people, they might not be experiencing it directly or they might not be aware of it uh, directly where it's causing them a lot of pain. I know that's not the case always, but for a good number of younger people, it's just not a major obstacle for them if they're 13, 14, 15. Certainly not something that they're recognizing as racism that's causing them problems, even if they're 15, 16, 17. This might be the case for a lot of younger folks. So it might be difficult for them to be like, you know, mom is talking about there's a war again. What are you talking about? We're just going out to 
have a good time. If you can share instances like that and how frequent these sort of things are, uh, where you can have life-altering, life-ending situations that happen just within seconds. Uh, and you being a black person, male or female, your life can be totally extinguished, uh, where you don't have to do anything, uh, where you're just walking down the street, and then the next minute you've been shot, the next second uh, you've been shot. Uh, if anyone, particularly if you're trying to encourage them to be responsible uh, about consumption of alcohol or drugs or that sort of thing, these cases might be very helpful. Uh, as I said, Renisha McBride uh, from 2013 this incident, uh, unfortunately, there are quite a few Jordan Davis. There are quite a few uh, of these incidents just to be mindful uh, that it is dangerous, uh, that even if you have not had acute problems and if you're in that position, fantastic. But the older you get, I suspect that it is going to be a problem. Uh, and it's always better to be informed as opposed to having to find out the hard way and not being prepared uh, when things go drastically wrong, if you unfortunately end up in that situation. But just something I would really encourage. I have said that for years. I think just getting uh, some of the news reports with things that are happening to non-white people that are about the same age as your children, I think that that can be a very effective tool in demonstrating the importance of regardless of what your age is, you are a victim of racism. Racists do not care. Uh, child, elderly person, whatever. If you have melanin, that's reason enough to attack you. Hello? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes, uh, I just want to um, clue everybody in that uh, there's a breaking news situation in Milwaukee this evening. A uh, police officer fatally shot a man, and uh, they are um, burning buildings and setting cars on fire. And I'm seeing images from this situation, and it looks even more intense than the images that... I uh, saw surrounding the um, Ferguson situation, even the staged pictures. So, yeah, this looks um, this looks pretty bad. Just um, something to um, keep the viewers abreast too. All right, on. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, I just wanted to. To add that um, everything that you had just said, it's, it's um, I have a 16-year-old son, and before the summer, because of this program, uh, I gave him um, Between the World and Me, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, is a good starter book to read. He's read before, but um, my becoming unconfused, uh, becoming less confused, uh, helped me to give him some additional reading materials, and um uh, uh, they came back, they stayed with their mom in the summer, and they came back here. Um, they were already back in school, and um, it took them a while to read the book. Long story short, and I asked him about it, and I said, well, why was it so difficult for it to read? And he said, because I didn't want to come to the realization that that's something that happens to people like me. And so I really think that it's important that you talk to your children uh, about racism, white supremacy, and don't sugarcoat it, as Mr. Fuller said tell the truth but immediately after we had that conversation it was a very good lead-in to discussing the the shooting in raleigh north carolina and going through all the details and how cannabis is to be avoided 
anything involving being intoxicated and being aware of your surroundings and teaching, helping kids to understand we are in a system. And unfortunately, as much as you want to deny it, you do have to move differently. Um, I think what Roz had said earlier about house parties and things of that nature, that's extremely important um, because of these cities that, um, the, that white that white supremacists have constructed where you have a lot of non-constructive activities happening in these situations, you just have no idea where you are, um, whether it could be a race soldier or other non-white people that are confused. So um, this show has helped me tremendously in raising both of my children, and I just want to add that. Thanks, Governor. Hey, can I add something to that? Um, also, it's not just if your, your kids are uh, consuming cannabis. I believe, and I meant to ask for uh, if you heard anything about the case going forward. There was a gentleman who was um, killed down, I think it was North Carolina, and he just um, had a car accident and uh, was disorientated and was looking for help. And um, sort of like Lisa McBride in a way, um, but this guy turned out to be um, a clean kid, not a drug dealer, not a drug user, I think a scholar, a scholar athlete. So, um, you know, just um, be aware of all situations. You know, you should be telling your kids. I mean, um, don't, even, don't even go try to ring a bell for help. You have, you know, wait in your car. Um, and unfortunately, you waited for the police, but you never know what could happen. Jonathan Farrell, I think, is the situation you're referring to uh, where uh, Randall Carrick was not indicted in that case or excuse me he was not convicted they did have the trial he was indicted but he was not uh, convicted and uh, they're not gonna retry him or anything of that nature but uh, yeah it's dangerous uh, just to to be very serious uh, about that because he was sober no problems just had a car accident and that was that, that it, that is the world that we live in. Black life can be extinguished anytime, any place, for any reason or no reason at all. Just felt like a good day to kill a nigger and you happen to be here. Uh, the situ- I posted an article about the situation in Wisconsin. I'm sure there'll be lots of uh, reporting on that uh, over the next few days, weeks. They lock up lots of black people uh, in Wisconsin, so I'm not surprised uh, about something happening there uh, with uh, victims of racism being frustrated uh, about the abuse terrorism that is legendary uh, in the good old state of Wisconsin. Uh, any final comments before we get ready to wrap things up? Uh, yes. Uh, speaking of the brother who talked about his children and how the program helped him to um, optimize the way that he's raising them, it's so interesting because my son is actually in college and he's preparing to go back to school. He actually did a really important research project working with autistic children because he's um, going into audiology and speech and hearing sciences. That's what he's taking. And um, he recently went out with uh, his best friend. And his best friend, uh, they grew up together from high school on and are extremely close, but his uh, friend is a black male who is fairly affluent. And his, his life experience is very different and completely uncodified due to his exposure to affluent black people as well as quite a few affluent white people. And they ended up getting to, into some discussions regarding uh, racism, white supremacy, and how it functions. And because my son has been uh, so infused with an understanding of himself as a black male, his history, his culture, 
as well as um, racism, white supremacy, he said that he really feels sometimes like just being around young people his own age who, you know, and he understands the whole concept of BGQ, so it's not that he's um, in judgment of them, but he just said, like, he see, he feels so different because in his mind the veil has been removed so that he can really understand um, how the world functions. So he thinks and functions completely different to them, and he can see the difference between, between their uh, belief in the way this country is created and functions and what it is to be a so-called American versus his understanding of racism, white supremacy, and what it really means to be an American. And um, he said he finds it very hard sometimes to spend time in their presence in public spaces because he, he doesn't drink, he doesn't do drugs, he does nothing of the sort. And his friends, you know, will drink and do things like that. And, you know, he's, he, he's just watch, he'll just sit back and watch them uh, do things that could potentially, you know, put themselves in not-so-pleasant scenarios. And, um... Sometimes he said he feels like he has to babysit them simply because they're, you know, might be inebriated or whatever the case may be, and he's the only one who's not drinking. But he totally removes himself from situations that he feels would be potentially uh, negative if he feels those things coming up. He said, hey, you know, I'm not here to be anyone's parents, so if they make a bad decision, I'm not sitting around to, you know, to deal with any repercussions. I'm getting the heck up out of there. So I said, well, great way of thinking. You know, I said another way of thinking is maybe – um, not spending time within their presence in public if they're choosing to use any sort of alcoholic beverages or any anything of the sort, period. So that way you're not even out with them. So if that's what they choose to do, you know, God forbid something happens, you're not even there. And, um, you know, he thought about that, and, I said, and, I, and then he thought it was a good idea. And I said, yeah, I said, that's just another way to further protect yourself so that you understand. So since you have a deeper understanding, you know, allow them to be who they are. But when you're in their presence, make sure that that's not something that they're doing when you're around um, in, in order to protect yourself if they're not of the understanding of things, of the way things work and how to protect themselves. And also, if you can, take your time and slowly introduce them to these, to these, these things, and maybe they'll come around to understand things in the way that you do. And, um, you know, that, but that's basically their pro she's taking. So again, Dutch, thank you for the show because it has um, also enhanced my codification. And helped me to pass these things on to my son as well. And obviously it's having an effect on the way that he views the world and the way he chooses to function um, both at home and out in the world that he's around other non-white people. Hmm. Outstanding. Definitely uh, one of the top priorities if you are a uh, black parent, uh, that's one of your top duties. Make sure you're sharing information with your children uh, so that they can make better decisions. I think most of us here, uh, unfortunately, didn't have this information when we were children. Not all, but a lot of us I've heard that from. So uh, definitely I think it just puts you in a better position where you can avoid uh, making some errors uh, that can be uh, just potentially very harmful uh, just puts you in a much better position to uh, make excellent choices, keep yourself safe, uh, and avoid some of the many uh, traps that the system of white supremacy uh, has in store for black people in particular. Uh, we did our three. We will be here Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Sioux, Africa. We will finally do our review of her performance on the cows. Uh, went down Monday of this week. Legendary legendary um, we will be prepared folks uh had already been emailing some of their thoughts about these segments so i'll try to read some of uh, what people have mailed in uh certainly you can call in live and 
we'll kind of chop it up a little bit so we'll play a little bit stop chat and then you know go through it that way but looking forward to uh doing our review of uh sue africa legendary moment here at the context of white supremacy i'm sure we'll probably get a word in about what has taken place in uh wisconsin uh just tweeted one of the articles and posted it on facebook as well so i'm sure there'll be Lots to say about that. Even President Obama might have to come out and make a few words about racism again. Uh, But keep an eye on that. I know we have listeners uh, in the Wisconsin area as well. So if you all find anything that is uh, interesting that we should be aware of or any particularly well-written reports that have great information or information that is not typically given in some of the more mainstream outlets, uh, send it my way until justice at gmail.com. I'll share with listeners, put it on our social media pages and what have you. Uh, folks have any problems, difficulties accessing things in the archives, if you're looking for a program and you can't find it, uh, if you're confused about when upcoming programs are, or you just have questions in general, uh, guest suggestions also, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, I know we have uh, been picking up what seems like a growing number of listeners in the DMV, uh, Maryland, Washington, D.C., Virginia area. If we have folks in that area or anywhere else and you're interested in uh, connecting with listeners, cows, listeners that are in your geographic location, uh, if you drop me an email and you put in the subject, um, Virginia contact, Maryland contact, Toronto contact uh, we can I will forward your information to other people Uh, I've been saying that for a while and trying to pass information I know I got people that were in the Toronto area but I was not uh, I didn't have people offhand I know we do have Toronto listeners but they didn't email me or let me know that they were interested in uh, contacting other folks other listeners in their area so I'll put that out again for Toronto specifically and then uh, other areas if if there are listeners and you want to see if you can have contact it could just be email or over the phone and then if you feel like you know going to have a coffee or what have you you can see if that'll uh, be something of constructive time investment of your time and energy but just drop an email and make sure if you could codify that it makes it easier for me to keep up with things if you could just put wherever your city or state or whatever your geographic location is uh, again california contact or south florida contact uh, virginia contact whatever put that in the subject and i will forward along i hope you all can keep it constructive uh with that uh again we'll be here in about 48 hours uh again sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism i know it's summertime and you want to get out enjoy the last little bit uh, of frolicking before it starts to cool down fine that's great uh you still want to be codified the system of white supremacy whites do not take a break for summer fun. Uh, certainly, if you're going to be in a vehicle, you want to be totally sober. Uh, if that goes, if you're going to be driver, passenger, even if you are a pedestrian, you do not want to be intoxicated and bump into Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw. A white person with or without a badge can be potentially extremely dangerous, if not outright life-threatening. Keep that in mind. Uh, Certainly one of the worst combinations in the known universe, whites and alcohol, always an extremely bad combination. Keep that in mind. Take that seriously. 24-7 24-7 as an attempted counter-racist soldier. Uh, thanks for folks tuning in. Hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with 
ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.